Welcome to Inside Groove, the only motorsports show where super modifieds are king, methanol is aromatic, and the drivers carry their balls in a bag. Inside Groove is powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Here's your host and fellow superholic, Race Chaser Media's Tom Baker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inside Groove. Uh, my name is Tom Baker from Race Chaser Media. If you don't know me by now, uh, we've got a full show here uh, this week for you. We've got uh, we've got on the Strutmasters.com hotline right now. We've got Trent Stevens who was the most recent Supermodified winner, having uh, picked up the checkered flag at Sandusky last weekend. So we're going to talk to him in just a moment. Uh, we've also got, um, we've got winter views. We've got, I think, the top three from last week uh, that we're going to be bringing you on the show as well. Uh, audio courtesy of the folks from Midwest Supermodified series. Thank you for sending me that so we can help uh, promote what you're doing. Um, and uh, we've got plenty more to come as well. Our feature interview this week dick o'brien longtime track manager at the oswego speedway now retired still a member of the media one of my colleagues doing some uh, work for syracuse.com uh, and uh we're looking forward to that as well so uh this is going to be a full show we'll have an update uh, what's uh, going on up at oswego uh, hopefully uh, as well as we go. Um, but uh, starting the recording here on Wednesday morning of uh, the 4th of July post week here with Trent Stevens and happy to be doing that. Trent, uh, first of all, congratulations on a big win at Sandusky. Talk a little bit about uh, run us through your day here, man. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, and as far as uh, the race day, uh, to it wasn't looking very good. Uh, we we I was struggling with the car. I wasn't um, wasn't too happy with it. You know, Sandusky's kind of our home track, and typically run very well there, and 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 have a fast race car. And that kind of wasn't the case all day long. So um, we kept throwing changes at it, and and luckily the our last ditch effort before the feature kind of paid off. Um, car was the best it had been all day in the feature that's for sure wow. uh hopefully we can we can find a little bit more though well i mean you had enough to get the job done and that's the the main thing um you know it obviously has to be nice to be back in victory lane and uh an opportunity to kind of get your season started off right you had a good run at uh you know at, at uh, lucas oil raceway a couple of weeks ago and in, in uh you know, I know you would have loved to have picked up the win there, but uh, I think McVetta basically had everybody else covered uh, there. But uh, that race, obviously uh, a fun way to start the season, if nothing else. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it, you know, I guess not being happy with the car doesn't change how the outcome was, obviously. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's great to, to start off the season with the second and yeah. the win. So um, can't complain too much about that, but definitely – uh, want some more out of the car. So hopefully we can get better and, and get into that zone where we're battling for the win every week. Um, but uh, no, yeah, that, man, this off season has been long first off. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so last year, you know, we, we decided let end of last year that we were making 
wholesale changes to the car. And um, so far, they're paying off results-wise. You know, uh, IRP or Lucas Oil, the car ran the best it has ever run there. Um, it, it felt very good. We just kind of missed the setup for the feature. Uh, and then here at Sandusky, it's kind of the opposite. The car didn't feel so good, but we, we, we made it work. Uh, but the, the good news is, is, is there's still a lot, of, a lot of things we're learning with how much we've changed the car from sure. last year. And, um, you know, we, we still kind of got to figure out what, what setup works now. Uh, you know, the, the whole rear of the suspension is completely different. Oh, we wow. got a new top wing. Uh, we got new fuel setup. Uh, you know, new shocks, uh, just stuff around the car that uh, wasn't there, and, and we're we're working our way through all those changes to find out uh, what we did well and what we need to to change a little bit. What uh, talk talk a little bit about um, what you've been up to? I mean, COVID obviously has had a great impact on everybody. Um, you know how is how is that other than obviously not being able to race? Um, how are how have things been going for you and your work and your situation uh, during the shutdown? Yeah, so it was a little difficult because it kind of hit right right as the season was getting. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if we're talking from a racing yeah, standpoint, it was sure. difficult from that because you know we were planning on, uh, I guess, being in North Carolina now. It, I, I need to plan my trips up to Ohio, and and we were planning on going up to Ohio in April and May and stuff to, to make sure everything was ready for the season and all that hit. And they were kind of like, Hey, you can't travel. <laughs> so, wow. uh, that was difficult. Um, you know, it, it pushed some things back, unfortunately, uh, to get the car ready as well. We, we had some, uh, engine supplier issues. Um, and then of course we get all the parts and then, had some breakages on the dyno. So that pushed us back even further. Uh, oh, wow. So in hindsight, I guess it's, it's good that the season was a little later. Cause I don't know if we would have been ready. Yeah. It worked um, out for you with the issues you had, right? That's interesting. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, for example, we finished the, the team, I shouldn't say we, cause I was driving, but, uh, the car was finished Friday night before Lucas oil raceway. At 10 oh, wow. So, um, it's been, it's been, been rough for the team, uh, you know, and, and, uh, but outside of that, what I've been doing, I, I worked from home. Oh, you do work sent us home and, and we worked from home for a good month, month and a half almost. And what kind uh, of work do I've you been do? Back. Oh, um, so I, I work in, uh, Statesville at, uh, Oh, you're Tucson down here. Portland. Yeah. Wow. So I work at. <laughs> Tucson Portable Power okay. uh, as a design engineer. Interesting. So we need to get yep. together sometime because you're uh, I'm in Mooresville. <laughs> I had no idea. So you're based out of Statesville. So, yeah, that really would have thrown you for a loop because at first um, you couldn't you couldn't travel at all because of the situation. And, um, you know, now it's to a point where there are certain states like New York that are telling us we can't travel up because we do. We got to stay two weeks. Um, yeah. I mean, and so fortunately, uh, Ohio is in that position right now. Thank God. Who, yeah. Who follows the rules? Well, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Got to find just, the gray areas. Whether whether you can uh, think you're good enough at sort of sneaking in and sneaking out. Um, I've yeah. never been too good at sneaking, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not one of my better skills. But uh, that's interesting. I had no idea. So, yeah, you're working right to uh, so, um, yeah. our radio stations in Statesville, so you're not far from us. Uh, interesting. So you, yeah. So you were able to. Well, I guess in a way, it's probably good you were able to do your work from home because at least it didn't interrupt the workflow for you or, or mean that you yeah, lost the job. Yeah, I, I was whatever. actually really surprised. I mean, for for everybody working from home, it seemed from a work standpoint, everything moved along relatively well. So that was good. <laughs> I didn't lose a job. What is uh, Doosan like as a company to work for? I've I've enjoyed it so far. Um, you know, I've been here a little over a year now, and and uh, it's it's I shouldn't say tough work, but they expect a lot out of you. But the nice thing is they 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 give you what they expect. Right? Well, that's it, good. You know, my previous employer in Ohio was was on a downfall and never knew what they expected out of us, and that was very frustrating. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Um, you know, it's good to work for a company that rewards you well for what you do. Uh, they seem like a pretty big company, too. I'm not real familiar with them, but I've done a little bit of uh, research, and it seems like uh, seems like they're a pretty big outfit. Yeah, so, so Doosan's our parent company, yeah. and that's a, it's a, it's a large company. Um, and actually, Doosan owns Bobcat. So oh, I didn't know we, that. We actually tie into Bobcat uh, as as the North America section. Okay. Um, and then Doosan's a Korean company, and they have numerous different companies in Korea as well. Um, and so, yeah, between Bobcat and Portable Power, we're kind of the North American outfit. And, Are you a distributor um, or a manufacturer, or how does that work? Uh, manufacturer. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I thought it was a manufacturing so, company. Wow, that's interesting. But they must be good about obviously giving you the time you need to go go play in the race car, though. Uh, yeah, it's uh, luckily that's relatively flexible. I I do leave early on Fridays and drive all night to get the track, Oof. and drive all all night on Sunday to get back. Oh boy! <laughs> wow. <laughs> Plenty of. Uh, do you have like a? Um, uh, a, a Red Bull or NOS flavor of choice that you use to keep you? Uh, are you a coffee guy? Because I'm sure you got to have some sort of a caffeinated stimulant yeah. there at some point, right? Yep, yep. So <laughs> we enjoy coffee, yeah. and I found, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but there's this cold brew coffee that we found lately. There you go. And it, it comes in like a 64-ounce bottle, and it's great. That's awesome. Um, Stokes, S-T-O-K-S. There you go. All right. So those <laughs> are our audience. For a sponsor. Yeah. yeah, well, there you go. That's exactly right. Yeah, because you can promote that with a lot of passion. Um, and, uh, yeah, so if anybody in our audience, there you go. There's a there's a free plug, and uh, Stokes will send them a bill here. Uh, I'll work with you. <laughs> there we go. Um, okay, so let's get back to the racing side then. So what is in your you? I'm sure you're running the entire MSS series, right? That's probably in your plan, and, and I guess what else? I don't know how much else yes. there's going to be this year, but what were you kind of planning when you went in? Right. So, so obviously everything's been fluid with with everything changing. Um, originally, we weren't running the full series. Um, you know, we were we were going to hit uh, hit hit the races we wanted to race uh, right. between MSS and ISMA. Um, you know, we weren't really running for points this year, but ISMA hasn't run. 
we're off to a good start with MSS, and it's kind of like, well, we were planning on hitting eight to ten races between the two okay. prior, and now we don't even know if we'll get to race more than, you know, six, seven times. So um, it's looking like, yeah, we'll probably hit the remaining MSS races. Um, and, and like I said, everything's fluid. It, it, it's kind of a, hey, you want to run the next one? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Oh, it is. I know, I know as, as far as ISMA, I mean, we were planning on doing a Suigo and the Canada races and, and Thompson. And unfortunately, there's a conflicting date with Star and IRP, LRL. LOR, well, it, it's all the same. Yeah. <laughs> so th- that one's going to be <laughs> Right. So that one's going to be tough, uh, but not not 100% sure on that one yet. Okay. Um, wh- which would you would you go to I would you would probably prioritize the Lucas Oil race, right? Because I would think is that a points race for you guys? Yeah, so it would so, be a points race for MSS. You're um, in the running for so, a championship at the rate we're going. Yeah, so that that's changing things. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, originally I I I thought the original plan was star. Okay. But with with the start we've had this year with MSS, I'm not sure. <laughs> See, I think, so, I'll be honest, I think those races in Indiana are critical to the future of supermodified racing, or they could be critical to the future of supermodified racing if everyone would understand w- that, they're cri- that they're crucial to the future. Um, yes, you know, I, you, I completely you, agree with that. You've got two promoters that really want to build those those events and, the, and those divisions um and i've 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 spent a lot of time talking with mike moore and and even with his son max who's very involved um he's a he's a very bright young man and, and very well seasoned for 19 and uh the business aspect um with some of the, the things he's already accomplished outside of motorsports but um you know they have great interest and they're already talking about dates for next year and and how to you know how to do it and, and the whole nine yards and and it's i i really want i want to see the mss grow and i want to see that area grow because i can connect the dots from a business standpoint as to how it could impact the future of super modified racing overall if we could get four to five kind of national events that everybody goes to that could be then either live streamed in the way that that uh, this one was or you know perhaps on television or both um and therefore could be attractive to bigger sponsors and um you know and end up elevating the the division a little bit which then of course would trickle down to everybody else and i'm hoping that um with maybe with cuz it, it i mean i Boy, I hate being Debbie Downer, but um, it sure doesn't look good for New York right now. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and even if they did open up, they're only going to get a handful in. But I'm hoping that we can start opening some discussion maybe about next year and, and trying to get so that there's no conflicts and dates. Because I think these Indiana shows, if we could just get everybody to realize that if you'll just travel out there um, and and run these shows, you know, and, and we can do this for a season and get good car counts everywhere, the leverage that you have then when you can start showing them the views and the co- how much, you know, the social media and add all that up, you can start really trying to put some bigger money into the division, and that would help everybody. You know, does that make sense to you? I mean, am I just am I just 
dreaming that this that that this could be actually a real business model here? No, I mean I, I agree. It's MSS, you know, since the the chain from MSA to MSS, yeah. it's, it's kind of been it's it's clawing its way back up. I, I think For what sure. they're doing is yeah. good, you know. Um it's it's they're not trying to be Isma. They're trying to be different. They're right. trying. They're trying to grow supermodifieds with with new ways of thinking. And, right. And um, you know it, it the the rule packages yes are are dang near the same. So that's a good thing. That is a but, good thing. There's definitely a different market in Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana. Yeah. And I don't I don't think it's a bad thing to tap into Indiana. Um, you know, and unfortunately, the 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 race this year didn't have the cars and and that's well you can't really blame MSS for that no um, this is a know, lost the, year in general really yeah I mean and I I know I know there was a lot of interest from a lot of teams and a lot of not a lot of teams but some teams had issues and they just couldn't make it you know? yeah so well um, yeah I mean and, and then on top of that you had Canadian teams that have been there in the past. Well, that's what I'm saying. Allowed to cross the border. Yeah. I mean, this was a lost um, year, but I think Mike, I know Mike is, and I I just got a, while we were talking, actually, I just got a text from his his son um, asking about a certain weekend for next year and whether I think thought it would be a good date, and it's like, well, okay, but we got to get everybody else in on this discussion. This isn't my deal, but um, but but right. it, what it shows you is that they're already thinking ahead to the next time. They understand that you know this year was tough. I mean, obviously the crowd was down because of COVID, and I think in some ways probably the car, you know COVID certainly affected the car count in a huge way. Not only with the border, yeah. but with you know teams coming in and out of New England, and did they have to quarantine when they went back or whatever? Um, so I'm. I still want to hold on to hope that we can, because I still think there is a market for super modified racing out there. Not necessarily weekly, perhaps, but certainly interest. It would be interest if we could just get, um, because I still think of supers as a viable stepping stone, at least to the Indy 500, if not to IndyCar in general. And 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 of course the the conflict that got created a while back is when Indy Indy racing kind of emphasized the road courses more and then built this road to Indy and it was all formula stuff and overpriced road course racing. Um, and now some of that is just not working out well. It, it just isn't. Um, and I think yep. you're seeing now, um, you know, Brian Clawson kind of started to bridge the gap again and you're seeing some interest um in maybe giving some of the circle trackers an opportunity. And so, you know, I, I think the super modifieds, what you got to do is get everybody that the track owners, the series, uh, the teams, you know, everybody's got to buy into a larger vision than themselves. And I feel like that's what's happened in the, you know, more recent history is everybody's kind of doing what they want and they're not really thinking about the larger picture of you know how much better this could be if everybody could just get on the same page and oh yeah you know what sure. i mean it, it's there and with with live streaming it's more accessible than ever you don't need nbc or cbs or fox to be able to do something that can attract a lot of people's interest in a hurry and be very sellable and marketable but everybody does have to be on the same page and be willing to do what it takes in order to create the right environment for it. And so, um, you know, it, when I came out to, to, to Lucas, it was, 
it was cool to see. I mean, we didn't get the cars, but the people that were there seemed to be having a great time. And, I mean, McVetta got away. And, and, of course, you know, that track's so big that it was like putting a heat race out there for the feature. If you'd had 20 or 25 cars out there, it would have been a much better race to watch, right? But right. it was still yep. great racing and in a, in a great demonstration of, you know, what a super modified can do. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But I would really like to see MSS grow. And I love that, for example, Lorraine now is under new ownership and really showing a lot of interest in you know, and having supers be a part of that because that's a track that's been a super modified track for decades. Um, you know, and so um, when you when you look at your season, obviously, mostly at this point, it's probably going to be MSS. What is it going to take for you to continue to uh, to keep yourself up front and and keep uh, keep winning races? Because boy, you got some tough competition in that series. I mean, it, it's um, there may not be a lot of cars, but boy, the quality surely is there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I think the biggest thing we just need to do is kind of understand the car uh, with all the changes we made. Um, I I think we have a good we, we've got a better base than we've had in previous years and yeah. Um, you know, uh, with with not being able to race, it kind of makes you realize, hey, racing's racing's kind of fun. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes you get to lose it, it, it to realize how much you loved it. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think if we can get the car to where we can understand it and um, know what it needs, I think we can run with the best of them. So um, hopefully we can get it there. You know, it's still going to be some tweaking, and uh, as long as we keep getting better every race, I, I think that's all we can really ask for. Do you but, see yourself uh, at any point maybe, I mean, obviously probably I don't know what this year's going to bring just from the standpoint of whether the track will get open, but um, do you see yourself at some point wanting to do a um, an Oswego uh, effort at all without the top wing? I've always wanted to run a Oswego. Um, non, well, whatever you call it now. I know what you're saying. Super yeah. Non-wing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it, that, that's always been a drive for me, and... and um, uh, unfortunately, the the years I've pushed really hard for it, it's just been a, um, it, for some reason, the people I talk to exp- quite a bit of funds, and I'm just not really for that. So yeah, um, uh, it's you know I, I ran the classic one year and yep. was running on the verge of top 10 and the car broke, you know, that was back in 2009. I was 19 or something. Yeah. So, good. Um, you know, we, we ran the, the Sandusky non-wing shows. We were top three car there every, every year. So with a car from 1992. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to, to get in a very competitive car. Newer stuff. Yeah. And, uh, sure. And, um, and see what I can do. Well, it would be very interesting. Um, I never like to let anybody get away without giving them an opportunity to say thank you to those that uh, help them make this all happen because it isn't cheap and it requires a whole lot of time on a whole lot of people's parts. So uh, uh, who helps you make your racing happen, Trent? Uh, I mean, first and foremost, my crew, man. I've I've been racing for them since 2009. That's been 11 years. Wow. I don't think they've kept a driver longer than like two or three, so I don't know why they like me. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doesn't really matter. No, I, I, yeah, 
uh, you know, they work their butts off. Uh, we we have top notch equipment with a, a a budget of a lower budget team. So um, can't that done enough? You know, they, they work on these cars almost every night, and uh, it shows. You know, the cars are always very good, and uh, we keep keep digging and you know, uh, being down here in North Carolina now makes it a little tougher, but they don't give up and it's, it's, uh, it's been a fun ride. Um, outside of that, my family, right. I mean, yeah. uh, my, my parents started me doing this when I was seven. So it's kind of always been, there and, and, uh, we, we've dug our roots in deep and, um, and then wife and kids, you know, they, gosh, <laughs> now now the closest track is eight hours so yeah it's 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 a um it's a travel and um you know we're trying to figure all that out with the kids getting older and getting a little more restless so uh not easy but it's, it's uh it's always worth it when you run well that's for sure Absolutely. Well, um, it's been great to spend a little time with you here. I'd love to get you back on again uh, down the road when we can talk more about your background and kind of how you got started and, and all of that. But I know that uh, uh, we're we're part of your work day here, so we're going to let you get back to it. Uh, just want to congratulate you again on a on, on a great win and 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 the, the the second and first that you started the season with. That's uh, obviously. Um, almost as good a way <laughs> to start a season as you could. Uh, you would have liked to have won them both, but uh, if not winning seconds, the next best thing. So, um, yep, for sure. You know, you're averaging <laughs> 1.5 right now uh, for finishes in two races. That's pretty good. Uh, and yep. we wish you. I, the... I think uh, looking back on it, I forget which year it was. It was either 2011 or 2012. Uh, like I think the first six races was first and second. Wow. So it. it that one will be tough to beat, but we'll shoot for it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's that's it, man. I mean, when you're hot, you're hot, and you just uh, yep. you you try to extend that as long as uh, uh, as long as you can, for sure. So uh, again, thank you for taking some time, and congratulations on the win. And we definitely wish you the best of luck uh, going down the road, and uh, especially with the the big high miler coming up. Uh, we we look forward to. Uh, Look forward to seeing what you can do. Uh, you got a little rain race in the middle there, I think, uh, the week before, and then the high miler. So uh, good luck in both of those. Yep. Thank you very much. That is Trent Stevens. We're going to step aside for a moment. When we come back, we will continue with Inside Groove right after this. Victory Custom Trailers is a new and used trailer and RV dealership specializing in motor coaches, toter homes, race trailers, stackers, and lift gates. Their number one priority is to provide the absolute best customer service and deliver the finest quality trailers and coaches with flawless fit and finish. With over 200 coaches and trailers in stock, they are sure to have what you're looking for. If you're looking for something more custom, they can assist you in designing a trailer to meet your specifications so you will not be disappointed. In fact, you can design your very own trailer right from their website. For more information, just go to the website. You can check their inventory online. It's VictoryCustomTrailers.com. That's VictoryCustomTrailers.com. Welcome back to Inside Groove, uh, episode 51, otherwise known as the Leon Cowboy Weiskey edition. We'll talk about some other 51s in our closing segment and put out that challenge to you. But right now we want to continue with our coverage from last weekend's uh, Midwest Super Modified Series 
race at uh, Sandusky that Trent Stevens won. You heard from Trent, but you're going to hear from him again because Kevin Sears and the folks uh, from MSS were kind enough to um, actually get me audio from the top three. So we got the entire podium for you, and we're going to play them back to back to back with no uh, further comment from me. So you're just going to hear three straight interviews. Uh, the first one will be Trent, and second will be Rich Reed, and the last interview you will hear the voice will be familiar because you will hear uh, DJ Schulich. So we'll uh, have all three of those back to back to back right now. That was one fast 30-lap race. Yeah, I was waiting for it to end. <laughs> it's the worst part being out front that long. It's like, whew, is it going to end? You had uh, you had this field covered tonight. Tell us about that feature. Awesome. Uh, you know, I, I can't thank my guys enough. We, I was not happy with the car all day. It just wasn't happy. The car itself wasn't happy. We made a ton of changes before that feature, and uh, it was really good that first half, the first 20 laps. Slowed up a little bit the last little bit, but, um, man, I mean, we, we made big gains from the heat to the feature, and the car was real drivable, and it had good bite, so... Um, Hopefully we keep going with that, that's for sure. Well, this is the second uh, second year in a row you've won this race. So uh, hopefully that means uh, good things for you down the road here. Yeah, uh, it was kind of funny. Uh, last year was kind of a crazy race, and this one was a little more smooth. But um, I think we got a better car this year for sure. We made a lot of changes over the offseason, and I uh, just can't thank the guys enough. They worked their butts off on these this car and the 49, and it shows, right? So uh, hopefully keep going from here. Any sponsors? Uh, yeah, Casper Auto Groups, uh, Real Wheels, Schaefer's Racing Oil, uh, Displinters Heating, Cooling, SNS Cleaning. Uh, all help us out a bunch and can't appreciate it more. All right, congratulations. Thank you. Evening for you all together. A heat win and a second place in the feature. How was that? Uh, it was good. Um, you know, first thing, congratulations to the Stout campaign there, man. One and three. That's, that's pretty good, man. Those guys prepare some nice race cars and do a hell of a job getting their stuff here. And MSS appreciates that. So, uh, you, you know, you made some pretty good passes. You had uh, Danny Shire in front of you. You battled with him for several laps. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you know, it's just it's fun to, to be out there with good race car drivers, good cars, being able to race wheel to wheel with these guys. It's just it's a good feeling to be able to do that. All right. Any sponsors you want to mention tonight? Oh, gosh. What do we got? We got Atkins Glass on the side, A1 Airboats, uh, North Bay Realty, and um, Bush's Cleaning Service. Been with me for a long time. And also want to put a shout out to Jim Bowden. I appreciate all the help and time that he's given me. All right. Congratulations, Rich. Good run tonight. Great. All right, we're here with uh, third place finisher tonight, uh, DJ Schulich. DJ, how was that? You uh, you had a pretty good run with some uh, some tough competitors up there. Yeah, it was a good run. Um, I knew we had our work cut out for us when I saw the lineup, and uh, we were on the bottom, and uh, all the good cars were up front or on the outside of me. So I know I had to pass every single one of them to to win the race. And um, you know, the 55 was running good, and so was the uh, 19. I actually didn't even know the 19 was up there. Um, but I had one shot at Rich and uh, ran him a little close and bumped him uh, just on the right rear and I think it knocked the toe out but you know that's kind of how you have to run uh, fast cars is close so um, you know we'll take it third place uh, made some improvements on the car over the winter and we'll come back for uh, high miler awesome uh, you know you you did have a, a real close run with a lot of guys out there how was that uh, first say 15 laps uh, it was fun I mean that's always uh, the funnest part of the race when you get to pass cars and pop and weave in and out and what have you uh, but it was a lot of fun 
fun. Uh, thanks to MSS and uh, all the fans for coming out. I know it's trying times, but uh, thank you all for supporting us. And uh, thank you to Sandusky Speedway for uh, putting on these shows. Any sponsors you want to mention? Uh, just uh, Rich and Steve Stout for all the hard work they put in. Um, Casper Auto Group, uh, level performance. Uh, we couldn't do it without those guys. All right. Thanks, DJ. Hi, Grandma. Can Nina come over for dinner? Sure. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! If anyone ever does, I want you to say, no, I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. I promise, Grandma. They really do hear you. For tips on what to say, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. Welcome back to Inside Groove as we continue with episode 51, or as I'm calling it, the Leon the Cowboy Weiski episode. Uh, we'll talk about some other 51s later. Right now, we have got uh, a man who just turned 51 a few days ago. Dick O'Brien is with us uh, on Inside Groove, and I got to tell you, I'm, I'm pretty... Uh, I'm pretty excited to have uh, the chance to sit and chat with Dick. Um, of course, uh, Dick was the longtime uh, general manager, track manager of the Speedway, and uh, still is involved uh, on the media side of things, doing some writing for uh, the newspaper in Syracuse and uh, and being staying involved in the sport, still a huge fan of the sport. Um, you know, and for those of you who've known me a while or know me going back to the beginning of my media career, I'm surprised this man still talks to me, honestly, but, uh, I'm thankful that he gave me the chance to, uh, get older and wiser and become a little bit, uh, less of a, um, young, uh, person who was way too smart for my own good back then, probably, but, um, want to, uh, welcome Dick to the show. And, uh, first of all, you and I could do three or four hours, probably Dick. Uh, just reminiscing about uh, the years gone by and uh, drivers and teams and uh, different races that we saw. Um, But I really do want to start by taking you back to the beginning because I think a lot of people would like to know, how did Dick O'Brien actually get started in motorsports? What got you interested in it? And then kind of walk us through that up until the time that you – uh, ended up at the Speedway, and then, you know, how did that all work? Did you start as a track manager? Did you do other things before that? Just kind of walk us through the beginning of all of that. Well, <clears throat> first of all, I'm, I'm glad to be here and glad to be on with you, and I've listened to a few of your shows, and and uh, it's it's really nice. You know, a lot of times you don't really see a lot of real detailed, super-modified talk. You know, yeah, it's uh, sort of a little subculture of uh, American uh, motorsports, and uh, having a forum like this where diehard groupies like you and I can talk, and then have uh, have our uh, you know the old diehard Oswego fans listening is yeah. really good. But yeah, I started out. I grew up in Auburn, New York. Okay, outside of uh, uh, Oswego and Syracuse. And uh, my uh, my parents loved racing. They loved baseball. I can remember growing up in the 50s, going to a lot of, you know, early races. I can remember going to New York City about once a month in the summer with my 
father and two uncles to see baseball. Oh, wow. Went to see the, you know, I was a big Yankee fan. No, and, wrong team. Uh, uh, I went to Ebbets Field and Dodge, uh, Field to see the Dodgers and Polo Grounds. So we used to see all three New York teams in those days. I went to two World Series. And then when we were around town, I, I loved the Syracuse Mile. And when the Indy cars or the dirt champ cars were there for their 100-miler, that was always the Saturday after Labor Day for many, many years. I loved that. I can remember going to the Wheatsport Speedway opener, 1955. Oh, wow. First ever race at Wheatsport Speedway. Stan no kidding. Dzinski built the track and... Uh, I remember going there, and I can remember distinctly a car going off the second turn over the bank, sort of into the woods. <laughs> I used to love that. The tree fell down <laughs> over the top of the car. Oh, jeez. Oh, I thought that was about the <laughs> wildest thing that I'd seen, you know. And, yeah. Uh, I remember ARDC Midgets at Brewerton when it was a quarter-mile paved track. ARDC used to come up once or twice. And then, obviously, you would, you would get up to Oswego, that was on the smaller track, A's and B's, overheads and flatheads. Yeah, fast three-eighths of a mile back then. the track, you know, in the early 60s. And and then in 57, uh, Harry started, you know, the Classic, which was a 100-lap yep. initially for a 100-lap, you know, modified race, pavement modified race. And uh, I used to go to Oswego a lot. I liked Oswego. There was a fairly fast track. And once it got to the bigger track, you know, the speeds obviously picked up quite a bit. And uh, they had A's and B's. A's were overhead motors, and B's were the flatheads. And uh, generally speaking, the bigger names, Swifty, Murphy, Bloom, Bliss, were, were in the A's. And uh, they didn't have as many of those, but they were the faster yeah, cars. Yeah, sure. The bigger name drivers, you know, they were sort of like the favorites. And then the Bs were flatheads. Dut Yanny and a few guys like that were the top dogs. And they uh, they had more cars. And it was during this period when, uh, when uh, they wanted equal money equal money to the uh, uh, A's. And it didn't really, Harry was sort of reluctant, I guess, to, uh, I was a spectator then. Okay. He was sort of reluctant to, uh, uh, you know, pay the extra money. And uh, one night just before the A feature, the B's came out on the racetrack and blocked the track. You know, they'd come out the front gate there and... uh, blocked the track, and that sort of, uh, Harry got a little upset with, with that, you know, and uh, so he he told his security to open the outside gate in the middle of the front chute, and uh, he told the bees to get out, and the, the bees have never been back on the racetrack <laughs> since. To my knowledge, there's never been another bee on the racetrack, but the important part of that was it was it left him with not too many cars, a lot of you know fast big names, but he took some of that money from the bees, some of their purse money, and they put it into the A class. Okay, and propped it up. Do you understand what I sure. mean? Sure. Yeah, so absolutely. 
in those days, they were surrounded, you know, by pavement tracks. Pavement modifieds were all over the place. You know, Lancaster, Spencer, Shangri-La, Utica, Rome, you know, places like that. Yeah. So everybody ran the mods, and he started paying some big money, and he started a classic and and uh, putting money into the classic. And in the 61 classic, I believe, he was advertising it as a open competition modified. So I remember he took a big ad, Speed Sport News. He was the first advertiser to take a two-page centerfold spread. I remember oh, wow. he talked him into a big, huge centerfold spread, you know, with the money emphasizing what it paid to win and, uh, you know, the laps and yeah. whatever. And these cars showed up for the race that were basically supers. And, and everybody started complaining, all the locals, but, uh, you know, <laughs> they had had a tube frame car by Nolan Swift had raced during the regular season with a stock car body on it, and that that was sort of, I guess, banned from competition during that year. But for this big open race, everything is back to sort of wide open. Open rules, yeah. And even though he had a tremendous backlash from his regular competitors, Terry liked the Supers that were showing up. You know, the Nelly Wards and Art Bennett's and Dave Paul. Sure. Gordy, John Cott, and, and and they're up there, and basically, you know, Swifty, who had, you know, in a sense, the first local super, he was the only one that could stay on the same side of the track with these other cars, you know. Gotcha. So, as it turns out, there was a lot of, there was a lot of controversy in that off-season, and... Terry really liked these cars. He was surrounded by modified tracks and yeah. modified cars, and he was the only one that had supers. So he said, "You know, let's we're going super mod for '62 on a weekly basis." And uh, what had happened, obviously. You know, it obsoleted a lot of the modified. Some of them tried yeah. to take their bodies off, and some bought cars from Michigan. And he didn't have a lot of cars, and the Michigan cars were dominating. You know, Art Bennett, and Dave Paul, and Gresley, sure. all those guys. And I was going weekly then. I was going every week. I loved the place. And uh, in 64, things were sort of moving along. You know, he was... More locals were getting competitive, and I always used to go up there early. I always used to go up there early where the cars were outside waiting to buy a pit pass. You know, I'm kicking tires and talking to a driver, you know, soaking up the atmosphere, especially the out-of-town guys. You know, how long it took them 10 hours to get there, and and in those days, some of them were running Spencer and Owego on Fridays, you know, during that period. Oh. And, uh... You know, they made a little swing. They'd do like a Spencer, a Swigo, and they'd hit Sandusky on the way back to Michigan. 
So those guys were just diehard super mod owners and drivers. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, was up there one day, and I, I happened to ask somebody. I said, "Who, who owns this joint?" And somebody, one of the officials there, said, "Oh, Harry Caruso owns this place. You know, his brothers are all involved, and sort of Harry was the elder, you know, brother, and he was pretty much the man." And, and as a matter of fact, that's him over there, and he's out in the parking lot with his big tractor mowing the grass. Had a big thing of gang mower behind it, you know, and he's oh, wow. mowing the grass. So when he finished up, he, he comes over there and he gets off the tractor, and I walked over to him and I introduced myself to him. And I said, Harry, you got a hell of a deal here. you got a hell of a show. I, I live down in Syracuse, and you don't see very little, you know, uh, about this in the Syracuse media. You know, in those days, it was newspaper and a little bit of TV. Sure. But uh, papers were the big deal then, you know. And right. Syracuse had the morning uh, post-standard yeah. and evening. Herald Journal. Yeah. So I said, I, I can help you out with this. I know some people down around, you know, in the media there, and perhaps I can help you out. And he says, uh, "Well, what's it going to cost me?" And I says, "Well, about uh, about twenty bucks a week, and two passes to the track." That was in 1964. So we shook hands right there, and I became a immediate Oswego Speedway employee. And uh, you know, I would take the news releases, and Don Kranz would supply me with pictures. And uh, I would wait around after the races, and Don would get them developed, you know, quick-like, and bring them back to the track. And then I'd go down, try and get them into the papers or in on the TV and whatever. And, uh, you know, that's how it started. Wow. And uh, I can remember during those days, I'd be upstairs. I'd be upstairs. And Harry and I used to talk a lot out on the porch in between the races. And... Uh, you know, he knew that I was, you know, pretty well versed with the local, you know, and national type racing. And, and he says, you know, I read a lot about this Todd Gibson and Norm Macrath and Bentley Warren. How how come they don't race here? They run supers. And I said, well, Harry, you know, they run in Ohio and Canada and New England for the same money that you're paying here. And why would they get in their car and drive five or six hours to race for the same money when they can stay right at home? Sure. And, and, um, and, you know, shortly after that break that Harry calls me up and he says, you know, we're going to raise the purse. I, I want to see some of these guys at a Swigo Speedway. And he raised the purse from like five or 600 to seven fifty. Just, to and, start, you know, or to uh, win, it, it to started win? a little bit of momentum, and I'll never forget one night. He never used to call me a lot at my house. We used to have meetings, or I'd talk to him at the track. And one Thursday night, called me up, and he says, "Nick, we're going to pay a thousand to win. We're wow. paying seven fifty. Going to raise the purse to a thousand to win the first track in the United States." to pay a thousand to win for a weekly racing show. 
And I said, holy cow, you know, if I'd have had a little time, I could get out releases and do this and that. But, you know, again, that's the way he was. Yeah. He wanted to do it. And eventually, now, that's when you saw, like, a, a Todd Gibson started coming up there. Todd Gibson was coming for the thousand to win. You know, a lot of, they never asked. They'd call me up and they'd say, what are you paying to win? They never said, what are you paying for the middle or the last? Yeah. Are, you paying, are you still paying 1000 to win? I said, yes, we are. So then you started seeing Bentley coming in and Norm Macrath coming in. And, and it was when he was putting money into the purse, not because of the crowd. The crowds were not there then. You just had an average-type crowd. But the cars brought the people. And then the people, you know, paid, you know, obviously more money. And, and on a yearly basis, you could almost see Harry raising, you know, the purse because it started to snowball. Right. And and the field started getting bigger. And then, if you'll remember, I don't know if it was during your time then, yet. I didn't the start till 73. You had to just start so you know. building grandstands yeah and in the early 70s is when he started adding a section or two of grandstand every year during those glory years of the uh you know of the uh 70s so this is this is why you know this is why again i think you know the most important calls in the history of the Swigo Speedway was made by Harry Caruso back when they had A's and B's, and he stuck with those A's, and he made them, and then the increased purse brought in these open competition modifiers. Right, which yeah. Which he really liked, and everybody else around him had mods, and Harry had supers. And that's why Oswego Speedway is the home of the Super Modifieds, because of nothing more than Harry Caruso building. You know, he built that. Yes. It nothing. It wasn't all money. He continued to improve the Speedway. If you'll remember back then, he enlarged the track in the early 60s, enlarged the track. He started putting in additional grandstands. He put on the roof, put heaters in the roof so he could have an expanded season. But uh, to me, to me, and this was a point I wanted to, uh, you know, stress, Yeah, is that I think Harry Caruso was the most important man in super modified racing. If you'll remember during these times, Sandusky was just a weekly track up in Canada, they had lost the CNE fairgrounds for the Supers. Right. They were bouncing around Flamborough, and the next thing you know, they were dropped from Flamborough. Down New England, you know, Russ Conway's gang always had uh, a weekly show at Star, and uh, but it, it didn't, you know, they never had an abundance of cars up there, but Russ always was wheeling and dealing. But the most important man, in my in my estimation, was Harry Caruso because when they really needed him, he put his money up 
before the crowds warranted it. He he made it happen. Yeah. With the uh, you know with it, with the money, and uh, you know that's that's just the point I I, I wanted to stress. Well, I I agree with that. I, in fact, um, you know, one of the things that when I was thinking about even the '60s, and I, you know, kind of wanted to do this by decade a little bit because I it gives us a, a a a way to cover things in a way that the fans can follow. Is not only did he do all that for the supermodified division, but you know, in the, especially in the '60s, and and you know, again, maybe even in in the early '70s. I I started going in '73, but there there were some other special shows. I mean, you know, there was a there, there were there was at least one USAC show I know in the '60s there uh, because you told me a great Mario Andretti story from that show. Um, oh yeah, you know, I got that down here too. I got that back. I'll tell you that. You know. I started in 64. I was the new guy there. Yeah. You know, I just was feeling out Harry, and Harry didn't know me that well. A lot of the people that worked there were employees of the steel mill. A lot of his family, you know, was was uh, his brothers were there. George Sr. ran the concessions. Yeah. Bill Caruso ran the tech in the infield. He was very familiar with tubing and welding and safety and he always inspected the cars and the helmets. And uh, so I was sort of the new guy. And and in, in that period, 64 and 65, all they ran was supers. They did, you know, all the shows yeah. were super modified. And I started talking to Harry one time. I said, Harry, you know, why don't we, have you ever thought about, you know, running another class of car? Um, you know, they... Uh, I was sort of a USAC guy. I used to go to Langhorn and Redding and Trenton to see USAC racing, Sprint, Champ Car. Right. And and Harry wasn't too impressed, you know, and, and, it, and there wasn't a lot of maybe faith in what I was saying. Right. And then I said, you know, there's IndyCar drivers that you can get for these races, and I'm pretty sure I could get Mario Andretti and, and along with several other, you know, Unser, Branson, McCluskey, I can get these guys to run at this track in a in a sprint car race. When I said Mario Andretti, his eyes lit right up. He told me, he says, listen, you get Mario Andretti signed to come up here and I'll run the race. We'll run it on a Sunday in, uh, I think it was in August of uh, 66. Okay. And uh, I was down to a Trenton champ car race. I had a photographer there, got a picture of Mario Andretti signing, you know, a sheet of paper as the entrant for Oswego. <laughs> and he needed, he says, I got to have some travel money. And, you know, obviously... Nobody paid any travel money at Oswego Speedway up to that point. Right. They were just local racers. He took care of toll money for the out-of-towners. You know, he'd give them $100 sure. if a Michigan car broke or something like that, but never paid just upfront cash appearance money. Right. And I called him right up from Trenton. I said, Harry, I can get Andretti. It's going to cost you a thousand dollars to, you know, to sign, seal, be there. He says, "Okay, let's go." So we went with it, 
and I'll never forget the day of the race, I got a call from a pit sign-in. They said, Andretti's here. He won't, he won't sign in until he gets his money, which is, <laughs> you know, logical. And uh, so I went down and got him, brought him up the stairs to a swigo, you know, clambered up the stairs. Yeah. Because Terry said, I'll pay him. I, I, you know, I was going to bring the money down. Yeah. Harry says, I'll pay him, because Harry wanted to meet Mario Andretti. Well, of course, sure. So I introduce him up on the top of the stairs, right, the same gateway that's there now, and introduced him, Mario, this Harry Crusoe owner of this joint. And the next thing I know, they're talking in Italian, and they're having this long... <laughs> back and forth in Italian and they're slapping each other on the shoulder and I'm from this area. Oh, I've been over that area. And uh, next thing you know, I get a call from the pits and they says, get Andretti over here. USAC only has two warm-up periods and they're getting ready to warm up. His car owner wanted him in the pits. So I said, hey, Harry, he's got to go. It's uh, time for, you know, we got to get his yeah. money. So, uh, I remember Harry always had a wallet, no wallet, had a, a rubber band around a thick wad of bills. <laughs> so he takes this rubber band off, and Mario has his two hands cupped in front of him, and Harry lays 10 $100 bills in his hand. Mario took them, folded them over. He was in his driver's uniform, and he unzips the pocket up in front, puts the money in, zips it, shakes his hand, goes out, sets fast time, wins the Empire State 100, uh, you know, race. Yeah. And uh, it was a tr absolutely sold-out crowd. This is obviously before back grandstand days. Right. The front grandstand was filled right to the bottom. Wow. And uh, it was a tremendous success. And in those days, you had to pay an overage. Uh, they got 40% of your gate, USAC. So there was a minimum, I think it was 7500 uh, for the minimum, and then they got 40% of the live gate over. So we paid the largest pavement sprint car purse ever that particular day in 1966. Wow. So that was, uh, after that, after that bake, uh, Harry and I got along a lot better. He sort of, you know, got a, had a lot more faith in me, obviously. I promoted, you know, a big sold-out race for him. Yeah. He took care of me handsomely as far as, you know, doing my promotional work. And, uh, you know, I felt real good about that. Well, and, it's uh, the point I was getting. came back the next year, and Andretti came back. With the four cam, uh, you know, sprint car. Yeah. The four cam Ford. I got his brother up there, Aldo. Aldo, yep. He was sort of a crash banger. He'd already <laughs> taken a couple of tumbles, and and he raced in that race. And I'll never forget Mario's lapping him in the middle of the race, coming out of two. And uh, he's going around the outside of him, and boy, Aldo goes into this slide for life towards the outside wall, and Mario just squeezed by him. And uh, obviously, because he was flying that day, and he won that race. He won that race uh, also. 
So uh, the following year, the following year, 68, we had uh, a, a third USAC race. We had a lot of problems getting game drivers. We did have uh, Gary Bettenhausen, but we didn't have Unser's and Dreddy, you know, yeah. guys like that. Um, you know, and they had had some, they had had some safety issues. You know, they lost a bunch of drivers during this period. Yes. You know, they had big uh, time. You know, Ronnie Luck, yep. our champion, was killed in a USAC sprint car race back in that day, so he never got a chance to come back to a swiggo with USAC. But uh, so we ran that race there. It was a very hot day in '68. We didn't have a very good crowd, and that ended and ended the USAC deal at uh, three races three races huh. but um, well the point know, I, the... I still liked the extra you know flavor of something besides weekly super racing well yeah see dick that was one of the points i was going to make though about harry is harry was a businessman he owned a business so right. when when he ran the racetrack and you came to him he he evaluated it in a business sense you know, is it? Can we make money on this? Is this going to be good for us? And when you brought him, you know, had the chance to bring him Mario. Mario wanted what a thousand you said or whatever it was, and and Harry said, "Sure, go it, go for it." And uh, you know, and and I think it was that kind of approach that that uh, Harry took early on. You know, that that really made the Speedway what it was. He was smart enough to understand if I focus on one thing and. You know, when I do the right things, if I put some money into it and invest up front and make the right moves, I can build this into something special. And by God, by the time the 70s hit, he certainly, you know, he had it rocking and rolling. And, you know, even from 68 forward, right? I mean, it started to really change in 68 and 69 when Gibson came in with the Indy Roadster and, um, you know, some of some of those things started happening. It really, I, I feel like that's when the... Uh, the division really took on a life of its own on uh, uh, almost. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And also in 68, that same year that USAC left, we went to Labor Day weekend with the Classic, three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Ah, okay. The old, the old Labor Day, or the old Classic weekend, the original, was always the uh, third week in September. Oh, I didn't know that. So that okay. some of the local tracks, modified tracks, would be closing down their season, and the cars could all come to Oswego. Gotcha. You know? So now now we've got supers, and we move it to Labor Day weekend. It, it, it brought up a little bit of a problem with Star and Sandusky, and that uh, they... You know, that's an important weekend for those two tracks. Well, of course. You know, to run their supers. Yeah. And we wanted them to come here. So we, I cut a deal with Russ, and I forget who was out at uh, Sandusky at the time. I don't think it was Bentley. But, uh, no, that's so the that 80s. They would not run supers, not close their track, not run supers right. on Labor Day weekend. Right. And then we would close the weekend after uh labor day for star classic and then we would take off um that harbor fest weekend for sandusky in the middle of uh you know in the middle of the summer which would have been the fourth it's still the fourth you know uh, fourth weekend 
of uh, July. So when we got that, now we've got a clean shot at all the, uh, you know what I mean, we got the clean shot at all of the Supers. Yes. And that race really started, you know, 50 cars, 60 cars, you know what I mean? This was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, uh, even though it was a 40-car starting field, it was a dogfight to make it into that field. Yes, it was. And uh, and then in '69, in '69, I I talking to Harry about the modifieds. You know they were still very strong in upstate New York. Yep. And all the top drivers were Troyers and Evans and all those guys were starting to come on strong. And I said, let's have a, a special modified race at the end of the year. So we took the old classic date, third week in September, and we had the modified 150 Okay. in September of uh, 69, September of 69. And that worked out very well, you know, to the point where these mod guys, they love the money. Obviously, it was more money than a lot of these weekly tracks, or, you know, specials yeah. that were paying. So the next thing you know, in 71 and 72, we started running the modifieds during the season uh, with the supers and getting into the double headers yep. in the crowds. Harry started having to build grandstands in the back. And, and like I said, that was his absolute, he just loved that. Yep. You know, I mean, he loved his racetrack. And he backed it with his money, even though sometimes the crowds didn't warrant it. He put it up to draw cars, which in turn drew fans. Right. It was just the opposite of what happens today sometimes where people are cutting back. And when you cut back, you know, you lose a little here and there. And the next thing you know, fans go down and then car counts go down. Yep. So that was his formula. And it worked. It worked great. Yeah, he but, he was really uh, that that period of time really was um, was was amazing because the talent, the the caliber of drivers that uh, came through the speedway, whether you were talking about supers or modifieds or USAC, whatever it was, was extremely high. And also, back in those days, the drivers were coming from all over, too. I mean, you know, Canada and the West Coast and, and uh, the South and the uh, New England and, and the Midwest. Uh, I mean, you had a great uh, a great field of cars to draw from, and everybody wanted to come to Oswego. And I feel like that still exists today, uh, that, that everybody wants to come to Oswego. But back then, it was just so much easier to do that. Um, you right. know, in, in a number of ways. I mean, obviously, you know, everything was less expensive back then, blah, blah, blah. But, but again, it was Harry's, it was Harry's love of the speedway that, that, that made him want to do what he did, but also he did what he did with an eye for building a business and building a successful model rather than just throwing money at it just because it, you know, it was something he enjoyed. It wasn't a hobby for him. Um, totally, it was a hobby, but it was also, he also approached it from a business standpoint, I feel like, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. And when he made a few bucks, obviously this turned into a money-making operation sure. in those days. Yep. He put the money back in the racetrack. Yes. And you always yep. saw, you know, like the roof would come on or they paved the pits or enlarged the track. They did all those major renovations. They had that big scoreboard, you know, yep. a 40 yep. two-digit numbers up on the scoreboard, you know, that Harry made himself with his workers from Northern Steel. Oh, no and kidding. It was really something, and uh, it was a great time. I- I'll tell you, it was the golden era of super-modified racing, and, you know, the cars were cheaper. Most everybody built their cars. Yes. They built their motors. They put them on a flat you know, open trailer, and they pulled it with a pickup truck from Michigan to Oswego or, or from New England to Oswego yep. or, you know what I mean? Yep. And and it was just it was just a, a great time. And uh, whether or not we ever get back to that, I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm glad that I was there for that period. Me I was too. there, and I saw yep. it all. I was fortunate enough to be part of the operation. I was sort of more of a front man, but I wasn't the most important guy. We had a great, great crew there. To this day, and they the still do. crew is yeah. as good as there is in the country. The corner men are all experienced. Yep. You know, the flaggers, and we had some great flaggers. And we've got, uh, you know what I mean, we, we, we had a good staff. And, and George Sr., he took pride in his Hoffman hot dogs and, you know, his quality hamburgers. The concessions were, you know, reasonable. They were dynamite. Hoffman hot yep. dogs are known all over the country and racing through Oswego Speedway. We always had them cooked on peanut oil on the grill. And, and that was as much of the, the part of the track as anything. It but, was. Uh, You're right. Uh, the Hoffman hot dog. Yeah. It was a great time. Everybody talks about the Martinsville hot dogs, and I keep reminding people down here that you don't know. A Martinsville hot dog is just a typical red hot dog that you can get anywhere in the South. It really doesn't. Right. There's nothing different about it. Everybody, there's this mystique attached to it. I've gone to Martinsville. I've had their hot dogs. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying they're not really that much different than what I get at Hickory. But you go to a Swiggo and get a Hoffman, you got yourself a hot dog. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? And, uh, it's a, you know, again, a, a great period. Uh, you know, I, I have a couple notes written down here. And during this 70s period when it was booming, you know, the interest in in trying to be competitive yeah. at Oswego, you know, uh, a lot of car owners went way out of their way to put money into race cars. And, and we started to see an escalation in car costs and and you know you had 500 cubic inch motors yeah you had rear engine cars you had four-wheel drive cars and you know it it created you know it created some you know really major major issues you know i i know some of these are still controversial to this day but Take, for example, I'm going to pick out a couple of examples. Okay. You know, obviously, Jimmy Champagne, number one. Probably, you know, the greatest premier car builder, designer, slashed racer in the history of the racetrack. I would agree. Yep. He had a 20-year career, but he basically 
changed the class over twice during this period. Yeah. When he built when he built his radical offset car during the glory years of 30, 40 cars or every yep. Saturday night, it basically obsoleted the majority of the cars in the pits. Yep. They were they were running for second on back and they knew it. And psychologically, when a race driver or a car owner knows that they cannot win, there's a tremendous effect on them. They either dig in and try and try and you know improve and go forward, right? Or they can regress and get out, right. saying that I, I'll, I'm going to try something else. Now, what you had then, you still had enough local interest and purse money that a lot of the car owners started going to the radical offset car. Right. You know, graves and building cars and uh, dates and some of these cars, some of them were obsoleted as 7 and 8-inch offsets, but a lot of guys went to the radical offset. Yeah. And that was great. Now you're duking it out, even though Champagne was a hell of a driver and he prepared his cars meticulously. He never broke. He always won the first race of the year. If you look at his oh, record yeah. over the years. I tell year, people that all the Champagne time. Champagne yep. won more opening days yep. and then went on to win the track championship. Yep. He was he was a hell of a he was a hell of a driver. You know what I mean? And uh, well, but you know, he was, was even the year seventy four, won the track championship. Uh, won the classic, won the Bud Mod 200. Sure did. You know, yep. those are records that, believe me, somebody's going to have to really scratch to top that or tie it or, you know, get anywhere as close to that. But my point is, that was okay. We still had a good, solid, competitive field. Yep. And we were drawing people on Saturday night. you got to remember, we're in the entertainment business. That's you have right. to entertain people with racing. Yep. And if you don't have racing, the average fan is not going to be coming there. Right. So we we flash forward a couple of years and we've got some rear engine cars. We had a couple win, you know, we had a couple of rear engine cars went up there. And then we've got, you know, Bill Height, he came up there with his car with seven Graves yep. for the first time. Yep. You know, he was in and out for a while, made a few, you know, special races, but he never ran a complete season until I think it was 68 or 7. I forget where. It, and, and Freddie Graves drove the car. They kept the car up here. Yeah, it was uh, and, 70. And the car was, was dominant. And then, you know, you've got Jimmy comes out with his rear engine offset car yeah so now we've got a situation where guys have mortgaged their homes and and cleaned out their 401s to build a front engine offset car and now through the few races that the rear engine car did win or run that's proving to be even more dominant and now you've got a situation where how many people are going to follow that? 
they they they've got all front engine cars. Now you're talking about a totally totally different animal. I I I can remember talking to Bill Height, and we were already debating getting back to you know cutting back in in some of these chassis deals. And if you'll remember, back when the turbine car was with Parnelli Jones. That was a dominant car that broke right at the end. But that was a four-wheel drive car. And if you'll remember, they let the turbine stay with a reduced air intake, which right. was like a... An equalizer. You know, which, which, uh, that you know, was an equalizer. Like a restrictor plate. Yeah. And, and, but what they did take away was the four-wheel drive. Right. So, in a sense, Oswego Speedway was allowing four-wheel drive cars after... The Indianapolis Motor Speedway had, had banned them, right? And and uh, you know it 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 seems funny that the biggest racetrack in the world is out in a swig old little track on the side of the lake. It's in. So I said, you know, I don't I don't know if we can you know have stuff like this happening. So I I had a long chat a couple times. I knew Bill Height very well. Yeah, nicest guy. I mean, he was he was sort of a, a genius, you know, in the champagne division with race car designs, and and uh, his cars, you know, I mean, even if you brushed them up a little bit, they'd still be competitive today. But I'd say, Bill, we've got um, we've got a lot of people that perhaps might be interested in four wheel drive cars. I'm asking you, are, are you interested in getting a program together and knocking out five or eight or as many as is warranted of these cars? And he immediately, he said, no, 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 I'm not, not interested in that at all. This is my little deal. This is my little, you know, thing. You know, he lived in Mobile, Alabama. Yes, he did. Yep. He says when he would leave to go to Oswego, he'd get a, bunch of chocolate chip cookies and a cooler with chocolate milk and he'd be in a suburban and he'd drive solo to a Swingo Speedway. He had some crew people up this way, but he had nobody on that trip and uh you know when he was going up and back. And then the one year he left the car there with uh Fred Graves. Yeah seventy six, yep. Yep. And he was not interested in that. Well he, he did say though I remember, um, I remember seeing an article in a program. I just read it not too long ago. In fact, he he, where he said um, I was a little surprised actually. Cause, you know, I was younger back then. He didn't pay attention to detail as much, I guess. But I remember reading this that he said he would be happy to share, you know, the blueprint or whatever. Or the you know, if anyone else. But he said my garage is small. I can only have about two cars at a time in it, and I'm really just not interested in. You know, and expanding. Um, so it was interesting that he didn't say that he wouldn't help the four-wheel drives expand, but he did say that he himself just didn't want to, you know, um, make the necessary, uh, I guess, adjustments in his own situation to do it himself, which is interesting. Um, I don't know. Did we? Did did the teams ever really buy into? the four-wheel drive piece of it, though, in the sense that, because I got the feeling, even the big question in the program, it's funny going back and looking at those programs that a lot of, I feel like you guys floated trial balloons 
a lot in in the program with the big questions. You would, it's almost like doing a poll of of the drivers to take their temperature on something. And a lot of them said they thought it could be dominant eventually, but they weren't necessarily interested in racing one. Um, it's just kind of interesting to to go back and 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 uh, and examine what you know what everybody was thinking and feeling about that particular aspect because. You know, it seemed to me that banning the four-wheel drives in 76 was kind of, um, it it really wasn't that much of an impact just because I don't think you had a whole bunch of people that really necessarily wanted to have them, or at least that's what I feel like I read. But the rear engine deal in, in, you know, after 79, kind of a different deal that was banned for a different reason than the four-wheel drives necessarily, wasn't about complication. It was just about speed, more or less. Yeah. You know, so well, interesting. It is. It is. And it, it, those were ungodly tough decisions. I'm sure. And and I, I'm, I'm sure, and, and, you know, obviously far and away the worst was the champagne rear engine decision. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. And But, again, it's based on your business. Yeah. It was a business decision. It had nothing to do with champagne. It, well, of course. It would be done Bill Height with that type of car right. or whatever. It was based on what potential harm that could do to the business in respect that people didn't have the money to go chasing after another totally different car design within a two- or three-year period. Yeah. You know, going from radical front to radical rear, 500-inch motors. I know when we, we, we attacked the 500-inch motor deal, we took a poll of all our cars, and most of the cars were were like, you know, uh, 60, they're 454, 60 over. Yep. So, you know, we were with the big block situation. It was a big block track, 454. Yep. And, and we were surrounded by... Glenn Donnelly dirt cars with a 60 over 468, you know, cubic inch dirt big block rule with, I think at the time, 580 dirt big blocks. Well, during the course of the year, teams, you know, fold up or get out or change. And these motors were very plentiful, but yet we had, five or six or seven car owners with 500, 535 cubic inch motors, you know, these yeah. big blocks, uh, half inch stroker cranks. Yeah. And, and I remember I called a guy in Los Angeles, you know, we, we looked into this thing. It wasn't just a spur of the moment decision. I called a guy in Los Angeles, Hank the crank who would make these half-inch stroker cranks. And I I was a, you know, pseudo car owner. And I'm, I'm, when can I get one of your cranks? He says, well, it's strictly off-season. They're very rare, you know, very rare, and there's not too many of them. And, and I do them when I have a chance. And they were, at the time, like $12,000 for this crank. And, and which was an ungodly amount. I'm not much of a mechanical guy, but I just wanted to feel him out. And he said, you know, the, the, the tough part would be if you have problems in the middle of the year, I'm, I'm booked up with Sprint Car 350, 
cranks and stuff like yeah. that. Four, you know, the 410 cranks, you know, for the 410 sprint cars and stuff like that. He said, I probably wouldn't be able to get to it. So we went and eliminated, you know, the old Black Bart 535, you know, the, and we went to the 468 rule, right. which has held its ground from way back then for the last 30, whatever number of years, and that's still the motor rule that's in effect at Oswego today. And, uh, you know, they're, you know, unfortunately, the, the motors are all built right now. Most yeah. of the guys could build their own back then. Yep. And, and the cost factor today has skyrocketed. You know, it's crazy. It's insanity. Yeah, it's insanity. Is, yeah, that's just the way of the you know the way of the land. Yeah. You know, the the home built super those days are gone. Yep. And uh, but I just wanted to say that when we went through this painful you know restriction of the cars, it was done to. You know, it was done to preserve our field, yeah. which allows us to draw people, which allows us to keep the purses going up. And if you look on from the late 70s when a lot of this stuff came down, you know, the 80s, we still had huge fields of cars, great racing, you know, all of the Hevron years, the Eddie B years. You know, and then Bentley started making his return to racing with the Flying Five. Again. The, uh, uh, you know, the, the Mazer cars. So, you know, there was a lot of real great, great racing with ample fields and, uh, you know, 50, 60 car classic fields after these restrictions were put in. Nobody wanted to do that. But we did that to preserve the business that we had. And in order to preserve Oswego Speedway is the, you know, the capital of, of, of super mod racing. Everybody, you still see people say, oh, I'd still like to see this or that. And it, it's, it's something that that era has come and it's gone. Technology is just overridden the sport, period. Well, and that's not, I will agree wholeheartedly with that last statement because that's, and that's not just supers, it's all over the sport. Technology, in a, in, in, the safety technology has, has obviously made the sport infinitely better, um, but the car technology, the engineering technology, and, and, and the advanced aero and all of that has completely in my opinion, ruined the sport in that sense, the competition side of the sport. Um, and and, it, and that's, that's across the board universally, not just at a swiggle. My only, my only thing, and, and, and again, I, I'm going to lay this out, Dick, just I want to hear your, your response to this because, um, you know, I understand because, I, I mean, I own a business. I understand the business side of the sport. I've operated racetracks. I've done different things. I've never owned a track, but I've promoted a few, managed a couple. Um, and I've been on a, in, in a lot of different roles in the sport. So I understand that you guys thought when you when you banned the rear engine car that you were doing, you know, you were doing the right thing for the sport. And, and, and I also, I remember that there were a number of new cars built for the 1980s we did have a period in the early 80s of short fields um and and i don't think it really had anything to do with 
anything other than just you know the situation in the in in the country and the world at the time and the and the cost of um you know replacing motors and and whatever but um but i i, I here's here's my the way that i looked at, at the rear engine band looking back at it i mean obviously back then i was just mad because you banned jimmy's car i mean was, <laughs> i was 14 what did i know but but when i look back at it here's my here would be my um kind of case that i would make here for why maybe you know wondering why we did it when i when i would look at that my first question would be well how much does that car cost compared to a roadster and according to everybody i've talked to and it's been a fair number of people over the years um it wasn't really any more expensive to build that rear engine car and jimmy has jimmy stated that um than it than it was to build a roadster it was just that the motor was in a different place. There really wasn't a lot of complicated technology on the car, like there, you know, would have been probably on a four-wheel drive where you had different considerations and you know the rear end and all that to make that work. Um, but and so my question would have been: I understand that it went pretty fast, but it it broke fairly easily. I still feel like it was relatively unproven in terms of durability. Um, you know, Conium had that race in the classic where, I mean, you know, he made up the lap and, and he looked like Superman, just like Swifty did in 71 when he made up two laps, supposedly to win. Right. Um, so my argument, my, my, um, question to you is if you looked at it from a cost factor and you understood that there were probably a dozen or 14 new cars built for 1980 after the rear engine car was banned, would it, <laughs> If if you knew that the cost wasn't any different than a Roadster and somebody was going to build a new car, um, if you look at it in that light, could you kind of um, could you kind of see the point of view that well, if it, if if it wasn't any different in terms of cost and it wasn't really any more complicated, <laughs> then um, you know why ban it? Why you know is there something else we can do that you know? Uh, what would be your response to that? Because I'm genuinely curious to hear that. Okay. I, here, here's the point, again. The cost of a engine car is one thing. The cost of a Roadster is, say, equal. Say uh-huh. we're, we're having them equal, just yeah. for the mm-hmm. sake of argument. Right. The point is, these people have bought and paid for, and many times were paying off their old car. Right. And now they're finding out it could potentially be obsoleted. Yeah. And the risk of, you know, I mean, I I see your cost factor deal, but they don't have the money to build that same equal cost car. But they build a new roadster. What you have to do is protect your field. Yeah. These these cars are like dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, now and, and even more so now. There's maybe only 50 left in the country. Yeah. But did you look around? Name me an organization that runs rear engine cars other than IndyCar. You know, USEC had rear engine cars, and they they left them, and and they did it for a reason. They would have obsoleted all the cars that they had, and when they went to a show, if they had half the front engine cars yeah. and a few rear engine cars dominating, that's not that good a program. Yeah. You have to entertain people with racing. Right. So we were very 
guarded against eliminating our program, eliminating the racing. And you can remember during these periods, after after the cutbacks, the races were great. Oh, they were. They were absolutely. Still, they're all 100%. front engine cars, yeah. but the racing was still there. Hundred percent. Nobody said these races stink. Or oh, I don't want to see. Uh, you know, Todd Gibson say win thirteen features. Yeah. That didn't happen in the eighties. Yeah. You know, the cars were similar. They all had the same size motor, four sixty eight. They all had a radical offset chassis. They all had similar tires. So you had racing. You had to go out there and and uh, uh have a good driver sure. and have a good handling car yep. and you won races. But believe me, Bake cutting back, we spent more time talking about that, and those were a very that was a very very painful you know decision. Yeah. But I think in hindsight, when you look at post cutback years, the racing was still good. Sure, the cars were plentiful, yep. and the crowds were good. You in are the correct. 80s. Yeah, I that agree. That was a totally. good period of racing at Oswego. As as anything, you know, you go back yeah. to Eddie B in '83. You go back to all those great classics, and you know when yeah. you know Joy and Furlong and all those guys started coming to the fore. Yeah, you know those were those were great years. Yeah, I, I mean, it it I I you know I can't say it was a hundred percent right, but for a Swigo Speedway, it worked out okay. It sure. worked out okay. Yeah, it and was I'm painful, not... and no and nobody liked. To walk up, I walked up to Jimmy Champagne, you know, at Thompson Speedway, and I got him aside, you know, and we always come out with our rules, and, yeah. and when that happened, and there was all this hubbub about rear-engine cars. We had two rear-engine cars that year. Jimmy Champagne and Warren Schoberlein were the only two rear-engine cars that were on that track that year, and, oh, and all of these guys came out of the woodwork car. with rear-engine cars, Dick Bergeron and Doug Gore and all these guys. That said, oh boy, you you know you took me out, you blew me out of the water. Hey, if we had ten or twelve engine cars supporting the track every week, you know you would have thought a lot stronger about keeping a engine. Uh, yeah, see, I think that my position on that was always, I think you would have had that. I think what Jimmy did is he simplified the rear engine to a point where it did basically equal the cost of a roadster. It wasn't any more complicated. I think you would have seen, you had about 12, you know, 14 new cars built for 1980 as it was. Some of those people probably would have tried to duplicate that, and I think you would have seen more rear engines car rear engine cars there because i think jimmy had taken that that the, the rear engine car had always been at least from what i and again i was very young so i'm looking back through programs and and reading what drivers said and and people said in the programs and then talking to people since but it, it, it seemed like the two criticisms of the rear engines were always their durability they didn't they didn't they had a lot of issues with with you know durability um you know f- f- being fragile i guess and you know nobody had figured out a way to make one go fast and stay fast they were kind of inconsistent spencer won the one race gibson had a couple of good runs with his but and, and then of course you know the four-wheel drive obviously was a whole different animal in itself so i think you got to kind of throw that one right out of the the conversation but um, you know, I think even the height cars, nobody made one work. I think the best one outside of the four-wheel drive, the fastest one, was Chet Phillip, which was in 79. Chet actually right. almost had a couple wins there. 
So I, the only thing I wonder about looking back is, is if, if you guys might have said, well, let's, let's give this a year and see if the competitors sort of figure this out and see where it goes, what might have happened. Now, again, I don't want to, you know, I'm not, I didn't bring you on here to, to, you know, argue with you over anything. And it's, I think it's good to, to discuss and look back and say, okay, we, we've got 40 years of, you know, history to look back on. How does that, you know, <laughs> where do we go there? Um, I, I can only imagine what you were thinking about back in those days. And I've always said, I don't, I don't, you know, blame anyone for what they did, you know, for the decision. I just happen to disagree. And I happen to think that maybe another year might've been, you know, now again, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but you can also always, um, I mean, we don't know what would have happened because obviously you made the decision to outlaw them. And, and so we never got to see what might've what might have happened, and, and and there's no denying what you say about the the quality of the racing. It didn't drop a single bit. It, it didn't it didn't drop one iota from 1980 forward because of that ban. Um, it just limited the super modifieds again, and and then we didn't have another car that was radically different until the the arrow car that Booth came out with in the mid 90s, and that was kind of the one that that. You know, I look at and scratch my head over because knowing what we know now, um, that did obsolete everything that was on the track instantly, pretty much. Once they got it to be durable, it pretty much won every race it entered. Um, and uh, it basically has has upped the cost of super modified racing by a ton. So, you you know, it's it it's never a perfect science, I guess is the point I want to make. Cause I want to kind of get you off the hook a little. Cause I, I, I want us to get back to focusing on some of the fun, fun stuff rather than getting caught in the minutiae here. But, um, but I, 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 it's just never a perfect science. You make the best decision you can make at the time. And, and then you, you know, you have to, um, you have to live with the consequences, whether they're good or bad. And, and uh, Harry and your team made a, a whole bunch of great decisions um, throughout the, the, the 60s and 70s to to get the Speedway to where it was at that point, for sure. Yep. And the one point I would like to make, though, in defense of, of the decision, there's sure. a lot of open-wheel pavement groups. How many of them are running rear-engine cars? Well, yeah, but of course, Oswego was kind Nobody. of. I would I would say Oswego kind of the was kind of the leader in that. And if Oswego hadn't you know, hadn't outlawed them. I mean, I don't think some of the other, you know, groups might have either in, in that sense. I mean, I think Oswego was kind of the, and again, it is what it is. And I don't want to spend a lot more time here because there's so much more that I'd love to talk about with you than, than, yeah. than that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But, but I just, but USAC, you know. USAC was the big one. And when USAC, you know, got, got out of the rear engine, and then really lately they've got out of, pavement sprint car racing. They're basically a dirt organization. <laughs> well, yeah. Car yeah, they, so, they are. That's you know, true. That was it. No, I, it's just one of them things. Yeah. It makes nice uh, fireside chat stuff. And, and uh, I appreciate you know, your honesty. What we thought was best. Yep. And it wasn't a quick yep. decision by any means. For we sure. We talked it over with as many people as we could and tried to make the fairest decision for the racetrack. Sure. Yep, absolutely. And, and I appreciate your... You're 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 uh, you're being candid about it, and I and I appreciate the the opportunity to have that conversation. I want to ask you, um, 
about some drivers uh, because I just feel like, you know, uh, the, the Oswego Speedway, and one of the reasons I brought this show back, the biggest reason I brought it back, was to talk about drivers and talk about uh, and talk to some of the drivers that built the Speedway. And I feel like that's a lot of what built Oswego Speedway, aside from Harry Caruso and, and you and, the, and, and George and, and the rest of the, the family who, who obviously ran it so well and, 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 and did the right things early on to get it to where it was. The, the caliber of drivers, I mean, when you, when, when, when I, I wasn't, I, like I said, I didn't start going until 73. Um, to me, I look back at the 60s, and as I talk to Warren Conium, and I talk to some of the other guys who came into the track at that time, Bentley, um, you know, those guys already had, there was a mystique already going about the Speedway in that time. And so when when you get a driver like Todd Gibson to start coming to a Swiggo and running or a Norm Macrath or, you know, a, a Conium, um, of course, Warren was brand new to racing when he started. The other two had already been established. But speaking from the standpoint of a Speedway official, but also as a fan, what was it like for you to start seeing those guys, the Wayne Landons and all the guys from Michigan? What was it like for you? And then to see some of them like John Cock go on to Indy, because that must have been an incredible feeling for you guys back then to see all of that sort of progression and know that Oswego is, is playing a key part in some of these drivers' careers that eventually go on to run the big races. Oh, absolutely. That was a time when... The cars in those early years, their 60s, 70s, you know, they were mostly, you know, home-built cars. And the cars were, in a sense, sort of basically equal. And drivers and handling was a big part of how successful you were. Yeah. And generally speaking, people like up at Star or Sandusky or up at the CNE in, in Canada, they they get going along good. And then they'd say, well, let's take it to Oswego and see what we really got. Oswego was bigger than all of those yep. other tracks. And uh, you'd take guys that, you know, Skip Manning, Bogalusa, yeah, Louisiana. Bogalusa kid, yeah. Have, you know, uh, <laughs> the West Coast guys, uh, Crombie and Boolean and Frank Weiss and those guys. Yep, British Columbia, yep. To the classic and that was tremendous. I remember I talked to Crombie and Boolean. You know, they had a, a pickup truck with a, with a double-deck trailer. Oh, it was, you know, that was a, awesome. Just a four-wheel yeah. trailer with two supers, one on top of the other, made it all the way from British Columbia yep. to Oswego. Yep. And then we got them hooked up with Russ Conway, and he ran the Star Classic, and... Uh, you know, they weren't that successful. They had little rear engine cars. But the Tip-key. point was Tip-key cars, I think. to know that when you're going, you think you're going good, there's one place you got to go. Yep. You've got to go to Oswego because yep. if you wanted Oswego, you know, uh, you, 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 you said something. Because, you know, at one time I had a list, I couldn't put my finger on it, of the drivers that ran Oswego that never won a race. Yep. You know what I mean? And that were great drivers, but they never won a race for one reason. There was a great field of cars there, and you had to really be, you know, you had to be really, really good 
to an exceptional yes. above the average or above the above average to win a race up there. And and that's why I mean you look at the fans that go to that racetrack, even now with the reduced amount of fans, a lot of them are old guard fans that have been there they are. for years right. and years. Yep. And they just love super modified racing because it's the cream of the crop. And, you know, now the cars are expensive and car counts are down. But let me tell you, you still got the best. You still have Doug DeDaro coming up there a couple times a year. You know, obviously Otto is there. And, yes. You know, the whole deal. You've got this nice mixture. You know, you've got the champagne name back at Oswego Speedway. And when he brought out that replica car, you know, last year, you know yes. what I mean? The Two years ago, yep. paint job yep. on his car. You know, those are things that you just can't put a dollar figure no, on. absolutely. It's, it's part of the fabric of super modified racing. It's Oswego Speedway, period. Back when you, uh, back, back in the day um, when... In that era, uh, when you would go somewhere else, you know, there wasn't really, I mean, ISMA formed in the early 70s. It it wasn't necessarily supposed to be what it is now. Um, but, you know, you whenever the Oswego cars went elsewhere, I feel like there was some celebrity attached to that. And I and I can I can relate to that, uh, relate um, even as as late as I, uh, what gosh what year 2012 2013 when the supers came down here um to run at concord um i mean people down here knew and know who those guys are and and know about oswego speedway but back then i feel like it was it was just it was incredible like the 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 status of the track was off the charts, which is why, as you say, a lot of those guys like, you know, Bouillon and and um, and Crombie and those guys, they all wanted to come to Oswego and run because they wanted to be a part of Classic Weekend. And, you know, the, the greatest thing I remember as a kid was the month of August because you never knew who was going to show up every week in August to dial in for the Classic, and we still had a track championship going on. So, like, it was just fever pitch in August right through the end of Classic Weekend. And um, that's it. And I feel like the only place, maybe, maybe there's two places, maybe Pennsylvania and New England right now are the two places in the entire country where you still kind of have that same sort of old school build up and feel. And, and because the divisions that race in those places in a lot of cases still get great car counts and you got a lot of um, old school fans too, but um, gosh, that was amazing. And you're right. I mean, it's, there's less cars, but there's still supers. And that's why I've always said as much as, you know, I or someone else, maybe we preferred something else or some other era or whatever. We, we you know, um, I will always support and try to help grow the super modified division for as long as the Lord lets me be able to, because I feel like it's still a class of car that should be a lot bigger than it is. And it should be featured more than it is in the national discussion. Um, but you know, we I feel like we've just got to find a way, first of all, to kind of get everybody on the same page. And like you did back then, we got to get everybody. There's a couple of promoters in the Midwest that, that really want to build the Supers up there. We got to have a couple races outside of, like, everybody's got to get off. We got to pick, like, five or six major events. And just like back in the day when you were there, 
we got to get everybody off those dates with the supers so that every available super can go to these big events because then you can increase the purse and then you can build. Um, and I think that would build the division again because let's face it, it isn't cheap to run the world of outlaws, even though it's just a sprint car. Um, you know, and I think there's guys who would have interest in the supers, but you just got to get more races and more bigger races for them. Um, you know, so so that people can can will feel good about making the investment in the cars. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, now you've basically got, you know, Swiggle cars and Isma cars. Yeah. And uh, you know, neither one of them is 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 up to their full potential, you know, field-wise. Yeah. And and you know, there you, you got to keep you know the cost of the cars down. Yes. And you know, the more again, we go back to the old Harry rule. The more cars you get, the more people you get. Yeah. It's a very simple yep. rule. Yep. You know, and and unfortunately, you know, we've got Isma on one side of the fence, and they don't want to budge there, yep. and the Oswego guys don't want to go to an yep. Isma race. You know, you got a couple of cars that might bounce around, but you've got to get everybody in a super modified, and then because there's only. 40 or 50 of these animals left in the country. Right. But if you could get 30 of them to a racetrack That's right. five times a year, yep. a couple in Ohio, one in Canada that just Castle wants to, they want to go with big races and yep. get a couple big races at Oswego. You know, Johnny Teresi is always going to be there for them. You know, so this is this is what you got to have. I agree. You got to have a common set of rules. Yep. You know, as, as far as, you know, uh, you got to have a basic car that can adapt to both tracks. Some of these cars are built strictly as a wing car. Yep. Some of them are built strictly as an Oswego car, and they aren't built to run, you know, the other side of the street, and you can't have that. There's not enough equipment now to, to warrant that. Yeah, I agree. Well, then that's, yeah, I think we can we can agree on that. Okay, I want to I wanna hit a couple of highlights here from back in my day at Oswego because I think these stories are fun. And you may have a story or two that comes to your mind as we talk about this. But um, do you remember the, uh, the and this would have been, I think, it, I think it was 76. I should have written, written notes about this. I'm trying to do it off the top of my head. I think it was 1976. Billy Law and Wayne Landon decided they were going to build a car for the Classic. And Warren Conium said to Landon at that time, if you can build a car for the Classic in 10 days and qualify, I'll eat your left front tire. Well, they built the car in 10 days, and they qualified it in and actually ended up finishing like 18th. And I remember at the end of the ne- – the, the during the next race program that followed that, um, somebody from Marie's Sweet Shop – I have no idea who organized this – and that's why I'm hoping maybe some of these stories you can shed some light on. But somebody thought it would be funny to have Marie's Sweet Shop bake a cake and decorate it like a tire. And that's what they gave to Warren Conium so he could eat at the left front tire. Of, of, yes, yes. I've, I've seen that picture. I have seen that picture. I remember yeah. when it happened. I just never knew who yeah. actually organized the gag because it was pretty funny. Right. Oh, there's a lot of, I mean, there are some absolutely great stories. You know, back after this, uh, you know, the cutbacks and whatever in the 80s, you know, again, I I always went to Daytona for promoter meetings, you know, in the wintertime, in Daytona week. And I became very friendly with, uh, good friends with Rex Robbins of ASA. And he was always bugging me. He had ASA rocking and rolling. 
you know, with Trickle and Martin and, yep. you know, Rusty Wallace. And he, he had the premier, you know, he had the premier touring late model deal. And uh, Harry was not a late model guy, you know. He, he liked his supers. And, you know, we talked a little bit about having a race. And I said, again, we dangled the old, you know, big, big name deal. And uh, we ended up having a race in 85, I think it was, ASA, and we had supers. And it was a double Sure header. did. Yep. 80, yeah, 85, and I think. We had right. Walter. Yeah. We had Allison. Yep. We had Joe Rutman. We had Mike McLaughlin in a late model. We had Merv Treichler in a late model. Mark Martin. And and the, the absolute, the thing that stands in my mind out of that show was I'm walking through the pits early, and Waltrip and Bentley are talking. And Bentley's got two flying fives yep. right there, looking literally identical. One was really good as regular car, and yep. one was a spare. The show car, yep. And I uh, I got heard him talking, and I said, uh, Daryl, I said, I don't jump into that son of a gun. And I said, no, nah, you know, I got, you know, rules with Budweiser, you know, he was this uh, Budweiser contract. Driver. Right, yeah, driving for and, Junior uh, Johnson at the time. But I said, oh, come on, why don't, why don't we do a little... Why don't we do a little match race, a little, you know, hokey-dokey Exhibition, match race. sure. People, people are going to love this. And I, I talked him in when Bentley says, well, listen, you better talk to, you better talk to Ed Bowley first. You know, it's his cars. Yeah. I'm just the driver of one of them. You better talk to Ed. Ed Bowley, good guy, good friend of mine. Yep. But he was a crusty old <laughs> That's what I've heard. He'd bark at you. And a lot of. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, colorful language, to say the least. Yeah. And I go over to him, and I said, Ed, hey, listen, I got a deal here. We got a big crowd. And that was one of the biggest crowds in the history of the race. Yeah, it was, the first one, yeah. That day. And I said, uh, listen, how about if I put Waltrip and Bentley out there for a little match race? You know, they'll they'll go along, and, and uh, you know, he'll follow... Bentley, you know, to know the groove, and then we'll line them up and we'll run a few laps. And uh, he says, never mind that shit. Put the son of a bitch in the feature. He wanted Walter <laughs> to go into the feature race. No he kidding. Said, wow. Put him in the feature if he wants to. He couldn't do that. But we ran our match race, and it was great. And there's pictures you know, there's video. Wall tripping. I, I always remember. I ran into him in Daytona the following year. He said, "Hey, O'Brien, get over here." He says, "I want to tell you something." He says, "What a treat that was to run yep. behind Bentley and to run with those cars." He said, "I never went so fast with so much throttle left." He said, "I never really." Lord, that car during that whole deal. Yeah. He said, I gummed it a couple of times in the middle of the back straightaway, and the thing starts getting a little, you know, assy yeah. on me. But he said, those are unbelievable cars. He says, what what a treat. And to this day, whenever I see Waltrip, 
you know, he did a great job for us. He came up a couple days early, yep. you know, went around to the media stops, and that's one of the reasons we had the race that we did. And, and doing that little doing that little match race with, of all people, Bentley Warren, yeah. you know, one of the yep. more popular yep. drivers in the history of the racetrack. You know what I mean? Yep. And uh, it, was, it was a good deal. It was a very successful show. Dick Trickle wins the race. Yep. You know, you figured he's going to do it. He wins a thousand races in his career, and he's got a Swigo notched on his belt. You know, so yep. that was a good deal, and uh, so that's uh, that was quite a deal. You know that that ASA race, but uh, and you know the other thing I wanted to touch on were the modifieds. Oh yeah, you know we had a great great modified program for many years. Absolutely, again. It was built around a very simple, hairy premise. Pay the good purse, and you get the good cars, then you get the big crowd. And our purses always paid, you know, is top dollar compared to Martinsville, Stafford, you know. And there were one-day shows, like the Bud 200. You come in on Saturday, you draw for your heat. You ran your heat, you ran a 200-lap feature, you got your money, and you went home. Yep. It's as easy as that. And that's why we had, you know, the crowds that we did. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what. you know, the 80s was a tough period for the mods, you know. Well, it you was. Jimmy Champagne yep. and Richie Evans, Charlie Drzombek, you know. Corky Maynard Cookman. retired. Yep. And the modified program started slipping. Yeah. And in 85, it went to the tour. And Cookie was running the tour then. Yep. And he made it a tour-type deal. You know, outsiders to the tour, they were given the rough road on inspection. And a lot of the guys from Spencer and Lancaster and Owego, you know, were having trouble getting inspected. You know, he's trying to protect stuff for his tour regulars, you know, and things like that. And... Car counts dropped. They used to be 50, 60 every year. At least. Then it got down to 34, which was the exact. That's all we had to start the race. Yeah. 34. A couple of years, I had asked Ed Close to start the race in his spare car in order to have a starting field, you know, a full field. So you could see that. And finally, you know, we dropped them. Uh, we dropped them in the late 80s or early 90s, and uh, during it was during this period that Harry had died. Yeah, and I think 92 and uh, 91, 92, and he wasn't a big Isma man. You know, he had had some issues yes. with, uh, you know, some of their leadership. You know, was giving him a rough time yep. on purses and this and that. And uh, that's why George Jr. and myself always had a deal with, you know, Isma. And uh, so after he had passed, we decided to run an Isma show. Right. Yep. And that's when we ran the first ever Isma show and uh, Glenn Donnelly's next to last asphalt dirt show. You know what I right. mean? The dirt yeah. blocks on, yep. on pavement. And that was a double header, another great, great show, big, big crowd. We had two nice purses, 
And uh, that was, if I'm not mistaken, Jimmy Horton won the uh, won the dirt mod. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. And Randy Riskus. Yes. Out doing put a. They had a hell of a duel with Bentley yep. Warren. In the two. And, uh... and, and that was just a great race. And Randy Riskus probably scored the biggest win of his career. And oh, I thought easily. it was, you know, that's the best I ever saw him run. And when you outduel Bentley Warren at Oswego Speedway in a super, yeah. you know, you know that, you know, they, uh, you know, that you've, you've done your homework. So that was, that was a great, that was a great deal. And, and we had some, you know, we, we ran some ISMA races. You know, one year we ran four, remember? We had monthly ISMA. Yep. Other years we'd run, you know, the opening weekend and the yep. ISMA Champagne doubleheader. And yep. We'd run Classic Weekend, which was a nice thing. Beginning of the year, end of the year. Yep. You know, gave the ISMA people a couple of nice shows. And uh, it made for a nice deal. But, you know, it was during this period, it was during this period that the local industry and basically, you know, was going south. You know, we had lost Miller Brewery and the nuke plants were down. And, you know, we lost General Motors plant in Syracuse and Carrier closed. Those, Those little things, you know, chipped away at your base crowd. Yes. And and what was happening during this period is the weekly crowd started declining. You know, the cars were decent. You know, we still had some, you know, decent uh, car counts. And the racing wasn't bad, but uh, it was nowhere near, the crowds were nowhere near like, like they were for, uh, you know, during during the years. And obviously, the car cost started to spiral in the late 90s yeah. and 2000, yep. you know, and, and you got into that built chassis 50 grand, built motor 50 grand, yep. you know, and uh, it, 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 it just priced a lot of people out of the ballpark, and the, the cars were faster. I don't think with the added speed, you, there was competitive, you know, the track didn't change at all. It's still the same size track right. inside hub rail, yep. and and when a car was running well down on the bottom, it made it awfully tough for somebody to get up on the outside and get going. Sure, you know? and uh, especially when you're running 16 second laps. Yep. So a combination of a lot of that. Now, now you have, you know, just the reverse of the Harry formula. You have less cars. You have less racing, and you obviously have less people in the grandstand. Yeah, and, and it's it's a tough deal right now. And and now you're into a a real serious rebuild. The Isma people, they've been running around with fourteen, fifteen cars the last couple of years. Yeah, regulars. Uh, they do well when they go to Sandusky. They pick up five or six out there, and they get their twenty cars. And when they come around New England and Star and Lee, they get a couple extra. But they have to sit down at the table and have one super modified car. I now, agree. You know, I can see having a show with a wing or non-wing, but have the basic car 
the same. And motor. So easily jump back and forth. Yep. Put the wing on. One thing. How about how about the how about? It just reminded me of a story. One of the greatest drives I think you'd ever seen was when Jimmy Champagne, when Jimmy Champagne tipped over his car in the middle of the season. Nineteen eighty. Stayed away, and then he comes back for the classic. Yep. And he takes his radical offset front, and he leads two hundred laps. Yep. Two hundred laps. But what? Most people don't know he took that same car the following Saturday night after the classic Sunday, put a wing on it, and uh, went and and led the Star Classic for 200 laps. Yeah, he led 400 now, there's a laps. That, believe me, I, I, if it happens, I, I want to be there when somebody ties that record. Well. And that was really, that goes back to, it's like, you know, we, after coming off the rear engine and all of that, Jimmy gets in the same equipment everyone else has and goes out and shoots a perfect race. And that goes to star with a wing and does it, and does it again. I mean, that's pretty, um, you know, it says an awful lot about who Jimmy was as a driver uh, and how good he was that he was able to do that. And you're right. Those are things I think we look back now, and if we understand the degree of difficulty, and and we say to ourselves, "Gosh, I'm glad I was able to see that." Obviously, go to Star, but I mean, I was there at Oswego. There are certain things over the years, and and I mean, I can bring it right up to now with some of the stuff Otto's done, and um, there are always moments in every season I feel like you can pick out and say, wow, that was amazing. You know, Gozik's still winning at, at 60 plus, uh, you know, those different things, but gosh, that was, you're right. That was an incredible, um, that was an incredible run. And, and he, you know, he right. had been running a sprint car in dirt most of the year. Right. Right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, another point that I'd like to make, you know, it was during this period, you know, with declining crowds, local economy, you know, closing down. Yeah. Max, mass exodus from New York State. Right. You know, people leaving yep. because of high taxation. Sure. Both in the Oswego area and on the state level. You know, we're one of the highest tax states in the country. Yep. Well, that chips away at your fan base. And I know at the time the track was being run by the second generation, you know, yep. Georgie Jr., and Doug, and and Romy, and I was still there, and during this period, I had a place out in California, but I was coming (laughs) back early in the uh, springtime, you know, to get geared up for this, and doing a lot of work out there in the wintertime, but we worked harder, Bake, we worked harder than you can't imagine the work we put into trying to promote Yep. racing to yep. get people yep. than, than the glory years. I mean, in a sense, the glory years, it happened almost flawlessly. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Without mm-hmm. It was just yep. happening. And, and uh, yeah, we, we did our, you know, promotions. But believe me, we really worked hard. We had those oh, industry nights when we would, you know, fill up the back grandstand with an industry and give them free tickets, yep. you know, and... Uh, uh, you know, I was a Teamster truck driver for UPS. Oh, that's right. I gave two tickets <laughs> to every Teamster in upstate New York, you know, for a Teamster night. Fill that place up over there. You yeah. know, things like that yep. to try and promote racing. 
And that's why uh, racing today, especially on the super side, they have got to work at promoting the division. Oh, yeah, I agree. Promote the division and try and create cars and drivers. And when you create cars and drivers, the old Harry formula, that brings the crowd. Yep which brings in the money. Yep. It's, 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 it's a very simple deal. Their racing is still, let me tell you, even now with the speeds of the Swigo, every once in a while you see a couple, three guys get hooked up in a real barn burner, you know, feature yep. race. And that's as good a racing as you want to see, sure. period. Yep. And I, I go to a lot of races, and I'm, yep. you know, I'm so still writing yep. motorsports for the post-standard, yep. and I see a ton of dirt races and, I have a lot of dust blown in my face, <laughs> lumps and bumps on the racetrack. Yeah. But when you see a good show at a swiggle, that's as good as anything around. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, oh, yeah. Even though the car counts and the crowds aren't what they used to be, that's still great racing. Well, it doesn't take it doesn't take 30 cars to put on a good show. I mean, I think 30 cars is always a better show in terms of just, you know, more cars in competition over the course of a day. But, I, I mean, you really only need two or three that are, that are really hooked up on that night to have a battle. And, you know, again, the Supers are, are still, they'll always be my favorite car. I mean, and, and the Modified's right there second, um, which is why I'm doing a Super Modified podcast and a Modified podcast every week now because I want to do my little tiny molecule, minuscule part to, to help, you know, promote and grow the division. Um you know, and and uh, and it's just uh, it's a it's a, a Swigo is just an amazing place. Even still, um, could it be better? Sure. Um, you know, but um, you know, I, I, I again, I think I, I think to everybody can have an opinion. I think sometimes people just it's interesting. Is sometimes I think people speak from emotion rather than you know logic and common sense, but. Um, but I, I, I do think that uh, the fact that Oswego is still going, and, and, and I've always said that anybody willing to take that on, whether it was the Furlongs and Steve Joya and that group, or rather now it's the Teresis and their group, anybody willing to take that on, that's a tough deal because, as you have said a few times over this this conversation, there's, you know, maybe if we stretched it 60 or 70 super modifieds, in existence now, of course, there's a bunch of old cars that still are around that you you're never going to race again, so you can't count those. But but you but you've got maybe fifty, sixty, you know. But I do think it's a division. I think people are, and, and I even see it down here in North Carolina, Obi. I think people are restless for difference again. I, I, I hear people talk about it. You know, the late models here, eh. You know, again, they sometimes they put on a great race. A lot of times it's follow the leader and there's not much, you know, excitement going on. And then, you know, the guy in second, if he's close enough to the guy in front, spins him out and wins the race. Um, it's kind of formulaic in some ways. Uh, I think people are, are, are restless for difference. And I think this would be the time to push to grow the division again. But you've you've got to, as we said, I think you just got to get everybody on the same page and get everybody to put aside their egos to understand that if we just all work together for a couple, three years here, um, you know, we can build the Midwest up again and, and we can, we can build, you know, a swig more, we can build new England more. We could have four or five or six big premier races that, you know, with a good purse and, and, you know, separate points or whatever, 
But you got to build it. You got to commit to it. And I'm not sure how much commitment some folks have to the big picture. I think there are folks who just really are more interested in, you know, in in their own um, likes and whatever preferences rather than than working together. And I hope over the next year or so you'll see that change because I still hold hope that we can still build this back. It'll never be what it used to be, but it can still be really really good and be be you know a a national a class of national interest um in terms of big shows if we do it right yeah i i agree you know again you know one point i wanted to make here before we finished up sure. you know i i wanted to put in a shout out you know back a shout out for the the small block supers yes you know a lot yes. of people back when things started the car count started going down. We wanted to make it a little bit easier for somebody to get into pavements, you know, racing at right. Oswego yep. Speedway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, at Oswego with the inside and the outside wall, you know, our safety record with the speeds and stuff wasn't the greatest, and we wanted a real sturdy car. I know a lot of people to this day say, they never should have done that. They should have. They should have used old supers. Well, we decided to go with a you know a full frame sturdier yeah, modified car. type car. Street Two stock things almost. have happened since then. A lot of people just like the supers and they don't like them. I understand that. Many nights they were younger drivers and they were spinning and learning their trade, and and the shows weren't as great, but. Their safety record has been very good. You didn't see a lot of drivers getting dragged off to the very hospital true. and whatever. Very true. And another thing, it was a development class for the Supers. Yep. And, and it if worked. You look through the record book it worked. of drivers that ran in that division, when they stepped up into the Supers, they really they didn't flounder around. They knew how to drive a Swigo Speedway. Absolutely. They were yep. They weren't rolling roadblocks out there. They were out there racing because they learned where the hub rail was. They learned where the groove was. They learned how to spin out and keep it off the wall yep. and stuff like that. And, and they, that class, you know, again, they, they still, you know, that they, they consider it maybe a, the ugly stepchild. They produce a lot of good racing. To it's this day. It's racing. Yeah. It's spec racing. Yep. But it's economical and we developed a lot of drivers that eventually made it into the supers and we're you know, very successful and, and, and now there's some of them or some of your better drivers yep. in, in the super modified class yep so what i'm saying is they that proved itself it that did. division we, there's no we doubt never wanted a yep. junior supers we wanted a development class for a swigo speedway that was safe and now that they're using their, their, you know, up in New England, they started that 350 class. They did. And yep. and that's okay. I I haven't seen a lot of it. I've seen three or four races. It's not bad. Uh, unfortunately, what's going to happen, you know, you want to keep the cost down there. Yep. Again, the, the cost is what you don't want to yep. get away from. You. I agree. And I, I can see already that some, some people have got brand new chassis. Yep. For, yep. you know, brand built chassis to run in the 350 yep. which is fine that's their prerogative 
but you still got the 350 motor and you've got the narrower tires. Right. So that, you know, the cars are plenty fast. I'll tell you, they're running, what, 17 seconds? Up yeah. There now oh, yeah. 17. Absolutely. So, you know, that's the handful when you're running on 9 or 10-inch tires. That's, yep. That's all you really, you know, that that's a good fast speed. So uh, I'm not saying that that's going to be the supers of the future, but, you know, I think that that helps. It's another stepping stone up into the big blocks. Well, you know? and I, but, uh, I think you needed you that gotta now. Get, because... You've got to get everybody on the same page with the big blocks because you yeah. can't. Yep. It's, it, there's too few of these yep. cars around yep. to be separated, split two or three ways. Isma, Oswego, Midwestern, and you know all yep. that sort of stuff. Yep, I agree. No, I think you're right. And the, and the uh, there were there were there were a lot of nights in the '90s when uh, these the then limited super modified. I wish they'd still call them that. Um, the the limited supers were were as good or better a show racing feature race than the super race was, and. You're absolutely right. It proved itself. There were a lot of guys, and and you know it was it was not quite as difficult to make the step. But see, with these new aero cars, I think they needed the three fifties to bridge that gap because there's a huge difference in cost between the 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 SBS car and and the big block super. So I think the three fifties um, will eventually serve as that gap. Um, but we've got to do something to get the cost down on the supers and we you're right we've got to get we've got to have the motor rules have to be standardized i'm sorry i know the isma guys are not going to like to hear this and maybe some of the other guys as well but we've got to standardize the motor and keep the motor costs down and we've got to find a tire and i i, I think you know we're i don't think isma yet i may be wrong but i don't think all the series run the exact same tire situation and we've got to find a um a way to 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 keep the costs in line and to make the cars as close as we can so it's easier for a guy from Oswego who wants to go to IRP to run for a good purse or go to Star or Sandusky or you know vice versa um to be competitive you know and and I again it's a different environment in the sport now you're not going to get Every car in one place, but but if you could get twenty five, you know, to thirty in one place, you're doing awfully well. And I don't see that happening anywhere right now, except the Swigo, and even the Classic. We get barely enough to fill the field anymore. So, um, yeah, I think there's hope. I just think it it's going to take people. Just again, you got to start thinking big picture, and you got to be committed to it. It's not going to be an overnight thing, but. Um, big shows and television, there's an opportunity here now and live streaming makes that even bigger and it makes the cost of putting it, making it nationally available a whole lot lower. So, um, you know, there's hope here, but people have got to get out from under their bubble a little bit and decide, look, okay, we're going to, we're going to build, we're going to be builders of a division, just like the Swifts and the Champines and all those guys were back in the day and the, and the Schulichs and the, you know, from each area. They were builders. They went around and did all that, you know, and it built the division. We got to have that again or else uh, it's it's just never going to grow. Nope, I agree. And, but, and you, know, uh, you know, almost like on a closing night, a uh, no-bake. Yeah. This this business this year is just so sad 
you know, with this corona thing. Yeah, it is. And it's, it is. The race season is literally just about over. Yeah. And and to see to see this thing struggle and to maybe get a couple of shows or do that as much as I want to see the classic or the high miler and all of that. I mean, I I don't I don't think a lot of this stuff is. I don't even know if it's it's good to have all your Canadian fans are locked out. You've got a lot of car owners and teams that have been out of work and businesses shut yep. down. And, you know, deals would not be that good. You know, if they really, if they didn't race this year, I, I, I could see that. I could see that almost as a positive. I would not want to go up there and see a classic field of 24 cars or 27 cars and, you know, and they've only raced a couple of times and a yeah. lot of dropouts and stuff like that. Gee, you really wouldn't like to see a, a historic race like that run under those conditions, you know. Well, and The way things are going right now up here in New York, it's it's going to be a tough sell. They've got to August yep. 2nd, which only leaves two or three Oswego dates, possible dates open. I know Sandusky, I know Sandusky cut their purse in half for this uh, high miler, and rightfully so, his grandstand, he can put half his grandstand. Right. He can sell 2,000 seats. Yep. He's got a $4,100 grandstand. Yep. He can sell 2,050 tickets. Yep. So he can't pay the purse that he normally would like to, and there's no guarantee that he's going to get 2,000 people there, you know, or, or he's not going to get a full field of cars. Right. You know, you'd like to see the support there, but I, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen. I, I can well, see, I can see 15 cars at Sandusky and 25 at Oswego, and that's not good. You know, Bake, that is not the way I want to, you know, classic weekend, you went up there, the parking lot's full, yeah. cars are everywhere, yep. grandstands are full. You know what I mean? You got a B-Main, you got, remember the old Bud Light B-Main? Oh, gosh, That's yes. what you like to see oh, in yeah. the classic. Yep. Well, I agree, and and I I your point your point is well taken. That you know you you I certainly see the point of I'd rather not see a show than to see a, a show that's kind of half a show. On the other hand, um, you know I can also understand that tracks need to generate some sort of income. They need to be, um, and I and and what I'm afraid of honestly is that um, we might be lingering into next year with this nonsense and and yep. uh and and and, and in, if i knew a hundred percent that you know which i there's still a big part of me that thinks on november 4th mysteriously this is all gonna uh but you know we'll, we'll see uh but but it, but if i if i knew a hundred percent that 2021 was going to be normal from january 1st forward and you know this was all going to be a horrible nightmare then um then I would probably agree with you and say, look, let's just shut it all down. Let's not, you know, let's not even try to do, but boy, it's tough. You still got expenses on the facility, even when you're not generating income, you know that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I can understand the tracks that want to run. Um, the big races are the tough deals. The modified tour is struggling to get to, you know, five or six shows this year. It had 17 on the schedule. Um, you know, for a lot of tracks, I guess, you know, a lot of them down here are running. I don't know how they're doing it without fans, but I guess the bat gate's good enough to, 
to you know to make it work for them well enough to keep it open but um you know up in new york a completely different deal and uh you know you know when when the state fair gets canceled that you know it's not a priority uh uh you know of of the the people in charge it's just not a priority to have events this year um and so you do have to say that uh it's i feel bad for these tracks that have have you know kind of violated the order in a way because again they're trying to do what's right for their customers and i don't blame them we had a couple down here that did it um and put fans in and and uh there was no negative response in terms of there is no proof no science no data from any of this down here in North Carolina that says that the tracks that had fans had a spike afterward that could be linked back to that. There just isn't. Um, and, and so it's all a big mess. And, you know, I, I hope the high miler works well. And again, if you got 20 cars, I hope it's a great, great 20 car race and, uh, everybody that can go enjoys it. I hope everybody will support it. Um, you know, but it's, uh, you're kind of uh, damned if you do and damned if you don't, the way I see it, Obi. Um, there's, yep. From a track promoter's standpoint, there's really no – I think every track has to do what's best for their track and follow a formula that works for them because what works for Sandusky may, will probably not work for Oswego. Different areas, different situations. What works for a dirt track in New York w- wouldn't necessarily work for Oswego or vice versa. So I, I think, you know, I think every track's got to do what they think is right and – uh we just all have to hope that, um, you know, this this all comes back around for 2021 because 2020 has just been a complete disaster. <laughs> it yeah, really has. It, it hasn't been good. But, and, and, you know, again, I've been around 78 years. And I are you that old? Seriously? Like are you really the 78? The wow. world is down on one knee. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, you're right. And, and there's... There's no treatment. It's where we all are. There's no vaccine. So until that happens, we're just floating along, waiting for the next big batch of people getting yeah, well. getting the virus. You know, it's as easy as that. Yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of older people like myself and my wife, we are very careful where we go. Yep. And and you know, a lot of them are super modified fans yep. that may not feel comfortable going in a group, even though there's distancing and all of that, a lot of people are just staying real close by their house. They're not eating out, whatever. So this is just a total change of lifestyle all over the world. And uh, you got to be careful. And hopefully, you know, racing is caught up in it right now and hopefully it can survive. I mean, Oswego's had their ups and downs over the years and it's always seemed to make it. So, you know, you've got a great racing tradition. And that's what carries on. We may have a blurb in 2020, but I think once it gets over this, I'm sure there'll be some sort of treatment or vaccine coming up here shortly. Yeah. And once that happens, sure. you're going to see employment go up, stock market go up, racing crowds are going to go up. I really believe that. I, I do believe that because we've been cooped up for all of 2020. I haven't yep. done anything this summer, yep. you know, so I, I'm I'm ready to roll when I feel it's safe to go. Well, and I understand all that, too, because it really affects, you know, your age group far more than any other age group, and, and you guys, you you folks, have do have to be very careful, and, uh, you know, I think we've seen that the data clearly shows that, that 
the younger demo, the younger the demographic, the less affected they are, and the, and the less it, and we get down to school age. Uh, you know, the, the, it's not, those kids are not getting it. They're not transmitting it. I mean, it's very, very, so I think the more we learn about it, the more we should be able to manage it well enough. Uh, if we're interested truly in managing it well enough and not in other motives, I think we ought to be able to do that and, and do it in a way that, that, um, that makes sense. And so, um, I would hope by 2021, um, regardless of, vaccine uh which i don't have a lot of faith in frankly uh i i don't you know it's a it's a tough deal but uh man you had uh you had a great ride at the big o and and you're still going you're still going to tracks you're still covering racing you're still passionate about racing um you know you still see bentley and a lot of other folks in your travels between west and east and um i feel like uh you know you've you've you and, and Ruth are, are just, um, it, it's a great life that you guys are, are blessed enough to lead at this point. And, and I'm happy for both of you. And, and uh, it's, this has been fun. I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to get you back on where we can focus on uh, drivers and stories more than, than yeah. you know, because oh, I think there's, you've got, I know you've got tons of those. You just have to, oh, if, yeah. if you can, if you sat down and spent some time, you know, writing out, uh, you can probably come up with 12 or 15 of them that would be hilarious to do, uh, to talk about. Cause that's really, to me, what, what stands out to me about motorsports and I, 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 I believe you'll agree with me. It's a family. It's a giant family. No matter where you are, what the racing is, you know, if you mess with somebody or somebody loses somebody, the whole family, you know, is affected by that. It's a, it's an amazing um, lifestyle. Uh, and, and, you know, people always ask, how can you, you know, watch cars going around in a circle? Well, because I know the drivers driving those cars. And I, you know, in some cases, I know their family, they're friends of mine. And um, there's a lot of energy uh, about that. And, and I think that that stands out in racing more than it does in any other sport to me. Well, that that's good. I I just wanted to thank you for you know having me on and absolutely a little bit. I want to thank you for you know your coverage of Supermod Racing. You know, there's not you know like I said before, it's a little niche uh, subculture yep. Yep. Uh, part of, of motorsports in this country. But yet, when you go every once in a while, when you see a barn burner, that's as good a racing yep. as there is anywhere. 100%. And, and uh, you know, you keeping, uh, you know, with your, uh, you know, more or less your weekly shows yep. and your coverage, yep. that, that's good. And I commend you for that. And uh, Well, I appreciate know, it. You're, you're a lifer like I am. Yeah, Ruth hopeless Ann, addict. So, uh, we, <laughs> I'm a hopeless we'll addict. We'll be there. <laughs> it's we'll right. be there. Just tell us when the race starts. That's you know exactly I mean? right. Uh, I appreciate it, man. It's been great. And uh, I look forward to, to doing this again here uh, down the road uh, when we can we can tell some more stories. I, I love that. I know the audience does, too. So um, we'll uh, we'll talk again here. Uh, and, and again, I, 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 I wish you and Ruth well. I hope that you can stay safe and, and uh, hope we can get you back out to a racetrack somewhere before the year's out, because I know that uh, that's a big part of your life still. As is is going Absolutely. and watching racing. So. Okay, okay, Tommy. Have thank a great you day. Lot, Take and, care. Uh, we'll catch you down the road. All right, that is uh, Dick O'Brien, and we're going to step aside for a moment. Be back with more of the groove right after this. Is your job sucking the life out of you? Wake up! You can do something else. Information technology. I know what you're thinking, but I'm not a math or science person. 
No excuses. No problem. It's not rocket science. It's my computer career. Helping people start an IT career is their thing. If you don't absolutely love what you do, go to mycomputercareer.edu and take the free career evaluation today. You can start your new life as an information technology professional in as little as four months. Attend classes on campus or live online just two or three times a week to get what you'll need to start your new career. More than just a school, My Computer Career helps you get into the industry by working with hundreds of employers that hire their students. My Computer Career is nationally accredited and financial aid is available for those who qualify, including the GI Bill. Classes start soon, so go take the career evaluation now at mycomputercareer.edu. Mycomputercareer.edu. That's mycomputercareer.edu. Welcome back to Inside Groove. Gosh, I sure hope you've enjoyed this show so far. There surely has been enough of it. If you've made it this far, you are a real groovy. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, I'm not going to take long on the close here because it's been a long enough show and you don't need to hear me talk anymore. But I do want to uh, mention just a couple of quick things. First of all, I uh, want to do the prerequisite thank you to all of our sponsors because we really do appreciate them. I hate to call them sponsors. I should call them partners because all of them really uh, are inspirations for me doing the show and um, help keep the show going. So to Rich Worth and the folks from JNS Paving, to Sean Cathcart and uh, uh, all the folks from Skip's Fish Fry, both in the Oswego, greater Oswego area, make sure you support them. Um, and to Jeff West and his staff at uh, IPC Indie, Indie Performance Composites, uh, you can go <laughs> and see them on social media. I'm sorry I can't share what I'm looking at, but I have some really strange friends. Uh, that's what I get for looking away from the screen and looking at my phone during a close. Um Okay, so thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Dick O'Brien for the generosity of his time and to uh, the folks from MSS, uh, Kevin Sears and his group that sent me, prepared and sent me the audio for this show as well. Of course, the High Miler coming up and uh, we're going to do more of a preview of that over the course of uh, our next show so uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here, but uh, the High Miler is coming up in a couple of weeks and uh, really looking forward to that um, and uh, excited about the uh, the opportunity to at least uh, see another Midwest Supermodified Series race, if not um, any other Supermodified racing this year, because boy, oh boy, the uh, New York and uh, New England do not look good right now at all um but we will hold out hope in the meantime i want to take the opportunity first of all to challenge you to put your thinking cap on those of you who are longtime veterans of the super modified association because uh i couldn't come up with a large list for the number 51 i feel like this is another one of those numbers that was kind of evasive over the years leon weiske was the first one i remember um, in the uh, early 70s when I started going, and actually that was a, a car, a chassis that Nolan Swift and Bill Wright built for Leon that he ran for um, a couple of years. And I don't know if Leon, I'm not sure that that wasn't it for Leon's career after that car. I don't recall 
seeing or hearing of Leon in any newer cars after that. So I think uh, like 73, 74, 75, somewhere in that area. Um, and that I feel like Leon may have uh, may have retired somewhere in the mid-70s or just got out of the sport or whatever. But um, And then, of course, we all know uh, Joe Moriarty ran as a 51. And in between times, I think it was in between times, we had Derek Gould who bought uh, a car from Dean Hogue. And I think it was, uh, if I remember right, it was a beautiful color blue, number 51. So there was Derek and then, of course, Joe. And um, I think that's it. I'm <laughs> I'm out of bullets for the 51. If anyone else could come up with one. Uh, oh, wait, nope. I just, I, I can't believe I would have missed this. Ron Gapsky was number 51. I think uh, he was the only other uh, one that I can remember. Ron Gapsky ran as the, the 51 in the, uh, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s in there. So uh, hope you guys have had a great show and, uh, and enjoyed the show as much as I've enjoyed presenting this one. Uh, this was a lot of fun to put together, and the interview with uh, Dick O'Brien was phenomenal. Uh, in my, it, it, for me, anyway, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I, I enjoyed that conversation and appreciated his candor on uh, all the issues we covered. Um, Dick has been around a long time and is, and is given his life to the sport, which is, um, or most of his life anyways, much of his life to, to the sport, um, as a lot of the rest of us have. So, uh, really appreciate his friendship and uh, that opportunity to chat. So, um, without further ado, I'm out of here. <laughs> we'll, uh, get back up hopefully with Camden proud on the next show. And, uh, we'll have some conversation about, uh, the Oswego practices and how they've been going and uh, what it looks like for the rest of the season. But I can tell you, it sure isn't looking promising. Um, we'll know more, I guess, after August 2nd. But uh, when I see the New York State governor canceling the New York State Fair, which is New York State's biggest money-making event, I start to get really, really uh, nervous. And when NASCAR is not able to run Watkins Glen and that race going now to the Daytona Road Course, um, I just don't hold out a lot of hope, but who knows? We'll see. I sure hope so. I miss uh, Swiggo Speedway. I miss the the uh, drivers. I miss the uh, the cars. I miss the racing. Uh, I know that I join the rest of you who are listening to this show and saying that um, you know we surely hope we at least can get a classic out of this season. But goodness gracious, uh, that would be a really interesting weekend if it were the only one they could run. So hopefully. Um, we will have some better news here um, in the coming few weeks for you. But uh, we'll give you the truth whether you want to hear it or not, I guess. That's kind of what we do here. So uh, in the meantime, for um, everybody that uh, was a part of this show, my name is Tom Baker. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Have a safe and uh, enjoyable week, and we'll see you back on the next Inside Groove. So long.